Good morning and welcome back to Scraps and Scrolls. Welcome back to the Isle of Faces. I know it's been a little while, but here we are back from the break again. I am your jolly green giant and I am here to take you through a lane one today as we continue our travels through the Winds of Winter preview chapters. Hello, how are you all? I am speaking to you from a very sunny England. It's been brilliant lately. Yes, much, much fun. And I'm very excited to get back to talking the winds of winter with you. Yes, as I said, it has been a little bit of a gap. I was able to get away for some special family occasions lately. I hope you've been okay in my absence and been enjoying Barristan 1 and 2. I did squeeze two together for you there just so you had something to keep you going. Now we're back on the Scraps and Strolls train. We've got lots and lots to talk about with a very important, very long chapter today. Not only that, but this is important times because depending on when this all comes out, hopefully it all goes as planned, this is episode 99 of the other faces that you are currently listening to. And well, I'm going to assume that most of you know what comes after 99. That's right. We're about to hit the century mark episode 100 of the isle of faces can you quite believe it well i know i can't so obviously i think you know by now i've made enough announcement posts and announcement podcast we're celebrating that 100th episode in a very very special way we are opening that new era of the isle of faces up with episode 100 now just in case you've been under a rock you don't know what i'm talking about the new era that i'm referring to is two new episode formats and one new co-host coming to join me here on the aisle on at least a kind of semi-regular basis some things she'll be here for some things she won't be here for but episode 100 that will be her debut episode as well as the first of our 100 questions of the winds of winter I won't explain all that to you again now. I think you know what the episode format is. Yes, we've got scraps and screens coming at a later date, but this is the one that we're going to hit the big celebration mark with. We're going to get through the first, I don't know, 10 or 15 questions of the 100, many of which are ones you sent in already. If you'd like to submit some more questions to those episode formats, then please do. Islefacespodcast at gmail.com or you can send me a message on Patreon or you can tweet at me or whatever you want to do. You can get them in and hopefully we can include them that would be wonderful we'd like as many of your questions as possible even though we've both wrote our own and as i say it will be our big big welcome for emily this is her first podcast in general it's her first with us so i'd love it if you could come along and make her feel as welcome as you already have she's very very excited to come i'm very very excited to have her here it's gonna be wonderful to get her takes and to answer these questions and have this conversational tone so that's episode 100 and it shouldn't be too far behind this episode again if things all go well hopefully we haven't switched it and uh, this ends up coming up after winds of winter but i think we should be safe elaine should be coming out first yes elaine is what we're dealing with today but before we get to her obviously must thank some people firstly as always we thank aziz and ashaya they keep steamrolling through there they're a little bit ahead of us again we're gonna have to play catch up but they had a break as well because they were involved in the virtual ice and fire con and from what i've seen that looked very very fun so i hope everybody who was involved in that had a great time I hope you have been all keeping up with History of Westeros and their coverage. I'm sure you have, as always. And who else to thank before we get going? Well, of course, it is our wonderful, wonderful patrons. I thank you one and all, as I thank everybody, for again being patient with me while I had that little break. It is very much appreciated for all your likes and shares and listens and downloads and everything that you all do. But I want to point out some patrons specifically, our Jade Branch's patrons, and want to thank Lomas Knight Rider, Survivor of the Yin Sleepover, Grizzly Meadows, Glenn T, Aegon the Sip, Lord Commander Namian Darklin, KM, 
And of course, Arch Mesha Dune, healer of the lesser poxes. I've missed you all. I've missed all of you listeners. Again, like I say, don't worry, we're going to be back on the regular, well, more than regular, because you're about to have three different episode types coming out at once. Yeah, we're going to have Scraps and Scrolls. That's going to be coming out as it has normally. Then we have the 100 questions with Emily. That'll be coming out, well, semi-regularly. We're not too sure yet. There's a lot to figure out in schedules and everything like that. But don't worry, there won't be too many big gaps between them. And then we're adding in a third. Scraps and Screens will start the Game of Thrones rewatch that I'm so excited about. I know many of you are excited about. That's going to be coming as well. So like I say, this new era that begins with episode 100 is soon to come. I hope you're as excited as I am. Some of you have sent in messages that say such, and it's very, very much appreciated. But before that, of course, we have a job to do today. We have a big old chapter to cover. A chapter for someone we've not spoken about in a long, long time. I can resist no further. I think we should just get down to it. Let's go and talk about our chapter today. Elaine, no, not really. Sansa 1. 1, 2, 3, Sansa 1. As switch-ups go, it's pretty hard to think of one as stark <laughs> between this week's Scraps and Scrolls and the last time out with Barristan 1 and 2. So far in our Wins preview chapters, we've been exclusively over in Marine, concerning ourselves with the Bat of the Fire and the thousand and one issues that come along with it. But now we really are switching it up from a hellish battlefield to the most peaceful place in the entire series in all of Westeros. We go from a hot bay to an ever colder mountain. We go from a huge meeting point of POVs and famous names in very public affairs to one single hidden POV, a flower hidden away in the snows of the mountain as we finally, after so very long, return to Sansa Stark. And it has been a large absence indeed. Remember, we've barely been to Westeros at all of late. We've had four straight chapters for Marine in Winds. Of the final ten chapters in Dance, seven of them were over in Essos, and one of the Westerosi was up at the Wall. For this area of the world specifically, we didn't visit whatsoever in Dance. No, no, the last time we had the opportunity to talk about Sansa Stark, it was all the way back in the end of A Feast for Crows. Both as a reading experience and for us out here in terms of real time, it's been an absolute age. That was at least half a year ago. It was right in the middle of 2020, I think. It's been months and months and months since we've had any access to one of our core characters, one of the original POVs, a member of our main family, and a superb, wonderful character that we absolutely love to discuss, and one of the very best ones for reread purposes. You hear it all the time. Sansa, much like Brienne, is just one of those ones who improves the more times you read her or listen to her, or whatever you're doing. It has been a long time coming. It is very different to what we've been talking about lately, but now we're going to give an absolute treat as we finally return to our fave, to one of the best in Sansa. And it is a major moment, truly. The chasm has been huge. In fact, let's be specific about it. We're always talking about POV gaps and who's had a large absence and who hasn't. In terms of the Starks, Bran has traditionally gotten the most attention in that respect, given his entire absence from all of the Feast of Crows. But it was Sansa who was the only Stark absent from Dance of Dragons, a much more Stark-focused book than Feast in the first place, so that felt weird. I wonder if there's some subtext in there on how she's allegedly the most removed from her family. We've had those discussions in the past. We know that's not really true. She's not really that removed, but yeah, it's there, okay. Now, in fairness, Aya only had a couple of chapters in Dance, and Bran finished up his arc very, very early, but they were there. Sansa's absence from that book isn't brought up nearly as much, I feel, which is a shame, because 
I definitely missed her, I know the majority of you missed her, and that's because she's great, because she was once a constant in the first three books, and also because there's a hell of a lot going on in her part of the world that we really, really want to know about. So you know we're going to have a whole bunch to say today about this character and the very welcome return of her. But how large was this actual gap? Remember, Sansa also suffered from one of the worst in-book gaps back in Storm. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but you'll remember we did that investigation a long, long time ago. She had a huge something like, I don't know what it was, a 30-chapter gap right in the middle of Storm between two of her POV chapters. That was because Tyrion was there as well, and, you know, she appeared in there, but still, it was weird. But seeing as we were reunited with Bran early on in Dance, we looked at how his absence stretched across multiple books, and we owe Sansa the same courtesy. I'll remind you, Feast Sansa was very much a change for us. We spoke about it a bunch at the time, but it's been a while, so I'll forgive you for forgetting. Sansa had a lot of chapters in the first three books, and like I say, a lot more appearances too, thanks to Tyrion's POV in King's Landing. She was always around, she was constant, but then Feast came, everything changed, and she got knocked down to just three chapters. That book was a great marker of change across the board, as we know, and we had to get used to the same thing for Arya as well, but that didn't make it any easier to accept with Sansa. Just three chapters for Sansa, one of our favourites? Yeah, it was a crying shame. But she at least did get one near the end, appearing in the 42nd chapter out of Feast's 46. So for our gap, she has those final four, plus the entire 73 chapters of Dance. Therefore, even if we're being super, super generous and imagining that Elaine 1 will be the opening chapter of Winds, which I think we all know it probably won't be, we're already looking at a gap of 77. That is a very, very long time to go without one of our Stark kids. One of the most interesting characters regardless. One of the greatest arcs of change and maturing and growing up and just... Well, let's just remember how much she's had to put up with. Let's remember that Sansa from the Game of Thrones, all the songs and the learning, that tourney that we'll, we will talk about a bit later on, and her interactions with Sandok again, and how she's had to just be part of a world that the other Starks haven't had to. Each kid has their thing, we know that, and at first glance, right at the Game of Thrones, yeah, sure, it looks like Sansa's going to have the easier path, or quote-unquote the less interesting, because Bran gets a mystical power, Arya's getting trained by a swordsman, John's got the mystical stuff at the wall and Rob's going to become king. Sure, sure, sure. And it looks like Sansa's just going to do the courtly thing. And for many people, that's not exciting. But this is George. He knows, of course, that that is one of the biggest aspects of his book. That's one whole side of his book. And it is incredibly interesting. And Sansa's the one who throws us all into that. Now, we've talked as we've gone through this reread project about the tough I mean, tough's not the word, is it? The excruciatingly painful road that Sansa's had to go on since Ned's fall and her imprisonment and how she's been used and being seen as a bargaining chip and just a name or just a walking womb at some times and all these other things. That's without the difficulty of being a young woman in a city like this, in a world like this, the threats she had to put up with Joffrey, the stuff which she's had to put up with Dantas Hollard. Before you even get to someone we're going to have to talk about a lot today, it is the return of Peter fucking Baelish. In fact, let's talk about him quickly now. Like Sansa, we haven't seen Peter fucking Baelish on page for a long, long time. And that's been lovely because he's such a bastard. And yet, consider the last time we saw him, so I'll remind you a little bit here. The last time we saw him in Elaine 2, which was Sansa's third chapter in Feast and that final chapter. This was a chapter where when he saw Sansa, he made her kiss him. And then, not as uh, that's not disgusting enough, he then proceeded to instruct her on how to properly kiss him. Ugh. 
the retching noises we must make when we have to remind ourselves. If you had blanked that out of your memory, I don't blame you because, oh my God, if this guy can't get any more disgusting. So that's a pretty bad memory to stick with. That was a pretty bad goodbye to him. It's been all that time since we've had to cover him. And yet, actually, it's not, has it? You'd think that'd be the worst thing that has happened of late. You'd think that'd be enough to rankle in our memory. And then we get a nice gap in dance. We have to deal with him at all. Except we did, didn't we? We did have to talk to him because everything we know about Peter Baelish, all the terrible things he's done, and Dance, a book where he didn't even appear, actually made it worse because we discovered the truth of what had happened precisely to Jane Poole. And you might remember when we covered Dance chapters, when we did Fionn's last, when he rescued Jane, took her out of Winterfell, I went on a big, 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 big rant a big, shouty, sweary rant about Peter fucking Baelish and everything he had done and everything we must blame him for and how he is the easy, easy in my mind, the biggest villain of this series, the biggest psychopath, the biggest... Well, I'll, I could use some words I'm not going to use because I'm not going to subject your ears to them. But whatever the worst word you can think of is, the worst insult to you personally, the most word you cannot utter... Whatever that is for you, that is Peter Baelish. And unfortunately, we have to return to him now. I will try not to get on my Jane Paul high horse and start ranting about him, but it's very, very tempting because it still burns at me. It still makes me very, very upset. I want to tear the pages apart whenever this man appears. But we actually get to revisit all his other crimes, all his current crimes that he's doing with Sansa. And uh, the creepiness, the awfulness, the... the retching will reappear. So we have that to revisit, because unfortunately for us, he is a very, very large character. Sansa is our window into him for the moment. So we're going to have a lot to talk about him, as well as the character herself, Sansa. She's who really should be getting our focus, as much as Peter Dan Baelish takes it away from her. We've got lots to find out, because it has been such a long time. We've been left on a, not a cliffhanger in the normal sense like you would be on the eve of battle for example like we did at the end of dance but still a cliffhanger just in that we really want to know what's happening at the veil with Sansa with her progression with Sweet Robin I'll remind you very very quickly of what actually ended at feast you'll remember they were coming down from the eerie winter had come they had to leave they were making their way down to the gates of the moon which they did in that chapter and then Sansa does arrive there she finds Peter Baelish as a quick aside she meets the three knights one of which is Sir Shadrich who Brienne met I'm sure remember the big surprise we had there but more importantly Peter revealed another part on the next part of his grand plan which was after a very very lengthy explanation that harry the heir currently in the custody or the uh, looking after of annual wainwood is basically sweet robin's heir he can inherit the eerie and the veil and therefore peter obviously has a plan to marry sansa to him okay very very good but what does that require well that requires sweet robin robert aaron to die so we finally had confirmation of that yes that's another thing to put in pia beige's ledger as if we don't already have enough quick aside i know i'm already talking about too much but quick aside i was talking to new 
are the Faces co-host Emily of the Eerie the other day and we were discussing Peter Baelish very quickly and I made the point that you could take like one of Littlefinger's worst crimes just one of them you can pick starting a national war that killed thousands upon thousands of people you could pick the decades-long abuse and torment and manipulation of Lysa you could pick anything to do with Jane Poole and even if he had only done the one of them they're all like top five crimes all time in the series he owns like half the list this is all one guy who's been doing all this and i doubt we're quite at the end of that list i'm sure he's going to have more to come and well sweet robin looks to be a part of that so we've got plenty to be catching up on we've got plenty to find out about what's going to happen with harry is this wedding going to go through is sansa going to be pushed off to someone else what is this guy like what's little fingers overall plan how is sansa herself doing is she going to be staying in the veil will she get home will she continue for Catelyn's footsteps into the Riverlands like I suggested before we've got lots and lots and lots to talk about and well luckily this chapter is going to give us some answers it's definitely going to give us material because I can tell you now we've been talking about the word count for each of these preview chapters well this one is not too far off 7,000 words 6695 in total by my count and clearly that is our longest preview chapter yet by a considerable margin that does make sense you might remember that Sansa's feast chapters were very 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 long i think one was the was it the longest or the second longest i can't remember off the top of my head but they were huge anyway so well it seems like george is going to keep that going and again that's because he has more than enough material he's been waiting all these years to get some sansa talk in of course it's going to be a huge chapter so that's pretty fun for us we've got much to cover let's dive straight in let's go back to the veil back to sansa stark now it's fitting that our opening scene is Sansa, yeah, I am calling her Sansa, not Elaine, get out of here, is reading Sweet Robin a tale on the winged night, considering that we just had Barristan putting on a winged helm, remember, for the Battle of the Fire. Now, we don't know where these chapters are going to be placed together. This is just Aziz's order we're following here, but yeah, we know Aziz would have researched it. This is probably a pretty good guess that they're somewhere near each other, but they could actually be miles apart when we see the published order. There might be no chapter sequencing whatever, but for our purposes here, it's a pretty cool link, isn't it? Either way, we have our establishing shot. And for the first time in these preview chapters, it's actually not focused on death or destruction. I know, weird. Instead, we have three characters set up immediately in Sansa, Sweet Robin and Maya Stone. And Maya is clearly on the outside still in terms of importance, much as we like her. But it's still great to have confirmation that this cool character that's been around since a Game of Thrones, remember, and easily could have faded from the narrative there, is still around. But we'll come back to Maya in a moment. Our first priority, of course, is finally seeing Sansa again, after all this time. This is our first shot of her, as we yearn to see what has changed in all that time since we were last with her. And I think it's quite intentional and purposeful from George that our first glimpse is in that same role that we saw back in Feast, playing replacement mother to Robin. She is the fill-in for Lysa for this poor kid who's lost his mother. He's attached himself to Sansa. We saw that a lot in Feast. We're probably going to see it a lot in Winds, so at least as long as he's alive. We know that this is one of the greatest worsts that Littlefinger has found in Sansa. It doubles up in use, in fact. Not only does Sansa have Robin's ear and his trust and is able to keep him at least mostly on side, she also keeps him quiet and out of Littlefinger's way. So it's two perks for the bastard there. We knew that was an aim of Littlefinger's and apparently, like I say, they've kept within these roles. Robert, he stays happy with his pitiful search for a parent. Sansa keeps occupied, yet still develops her lying and manipulating skills. And Peter has the aforementioned 
aforementioned perks. Most important of all, they retain control of the realm by having this access and bond to the kid. So already at the beginning, you can see our mindset has switched from battlefield tactics and decisions over thousands of people to the micro, the underhanded. It's the other side of the coin. We haven't really had too much of it yet in these preview chapters because we've been talking about battle and what's going to come up there. So this is a return to the different side of things, which Sansa often represents for us has been a long, long gap, so it's good to get back. We're going to be talking about how people can use or exploit each other. We're going to talk about the use of fake figureheads and PR strategies, how power and control can be won in the background and without the use of a weapon. We're right back into that arena now. And something I want to point out is the fact that this opening sentence starts with she was reading her little lord a tale. George doesn't use a name, he goes for the pronoun instead. And this isn't an anomaly for the opening line of a chapter, but we have to give it a bit more focus in terms of Sansa because of how much identity and the use of names is wrapped up in her development and the core of her arc, just like her sister. You will remember the hordes of time we spent back in Feast examining how often Sansa refers to herself as which name, within her own head I mean, and the timing of each incident because it was very, very telling about her mindset and what was happening to her at the time. It really opened a window into her mind and soul. So we can expect that to continue throughout Winds as well, as George opens with a tease by not giving us either name in the first line, only a she. Still, we only need to wait until the end of the paragraph to have our confirmation. I'll read it for you here. Maya had straw in her hair and a scowl on her face. That scowl comes of having Mitchell Redfort near, Elaine knew. We would have probably put money down on this being the state of Sansa's mind at the opening here anyway, given how Feast ended for her with her really buying into Littlefinger's bullshit, unfortunately. But it's still that little nail in the coffin. It's still a marker of how far she's falling into Peter Baelish's spell and is really, really getting into her education as a political mover or schemer. We know that is very much the plan of Peter Baelish, to get her into that role so that she can be better used. But he also quite likes the side effect of Sansa losing her Sansaness and drifting further away from her family, losing the identity, becoming more of this made up person, because this made up person comes from Peter Baelish. So get her away from her memories of Starks, her reliance on her family, make her rely on him more, he has more control. The grooming continues because let's make no bones about it here, that is what's happening. Sansa is being groomed. I don't think there's any argument about that, is there? There really shouldn't be. The more isolated she is, the more she needs him the more she relies on him, the easier she is to manipulate or push towards other, let's call them undesirable paths. We know she is very much a tool for Littlefinger to get further up his chaos ladder, but he does have other, even less savoury interests in her, unfortunately, as well. We covered all of those different types of intentions from top to bottom back in Feast, but it's been a while, so it all does bear repeating. Hopefully you'll stick with me here. As if we could actually forget, though, just how awful and evil this man is. That part, that's hard to forget. We know what he's doing to Sansa, and we know that it's working. During Feast, there was these little bursts of Sansa thinking of herself as Sansa, remembering her true persona and sticking to it. But then the Elaine persona slowly encroached as we went and definitely, definitely came pretty hard and fast at the end of that short feast arc. So this is what I mean when I say that this is one of the most important preview chapters just because of the length we've been away. This is one of the gaps that will have had the most going on in between the chapters in terms of Sansa's changing self-opinion and mindset. So we need to catch up and see how far she's gone, just what's been happening while we've been away. 
At the same time, we must remember to see this as a double-edged sword. While it is true that falling further into the idea of Elaine is awful and truly worrying for us as fans of hers because of how it puts her deeper into the clutches of Littlefinger and his depraved aims, there's also the aspect of it potentially, and I want to point out just potentially, giving her more agency over herself as well, developing her self-confidence, developing and using the skills that we've seen her utilise all the way through the series and just allow her to finally believe in herself because she deserves that. Those are all things we desperately want to see for Sansa. She does deserve it, like I say. She does have those skills and capabilities. There's no arguments there. The worry comes at the tipping point of whether those skills can eventually be used for her benefit in the long run by herself or will they be used for Littlefinger's. I think that's very much going to be the point of Sansa's wins arc, the final culmination of that question and that storyline, that relationship, and how Sansa will use this new version of herself in the crunch time. When it comes down to it, will she be able to look after herself, or will she be manipulated and used by Peter Littlefinger Baelish? Obviously, we're all cheering for one of those resolutions over the other, and have given plenty of theories on which is most likely to occur, plus how we're likely to see it, but we can come back to that a bit later at the end. We're still on the first paragraph right now. So, in that original paragraph alone, we have the most important fact. Sansa is in the Elaine mindset right now. She is referring to herself as Elaine, even in the privacy of her own mind. She's bought in. Then we have the second most important point. She is continuing her role of mothering young Sweet Robin. Both of those we probably could have guessed at anyway, but we also have Maya Stone being involved. And that's not out of the blue per se, because we saw Maya in Feast when they came down the mountain. We know she's there and she's around, but it's still surprising that she's so involved from a meta standpoint and that she'll apparently become more and more developed as a character, or at least that's what we're hoping. I mean, she's here, why wouldn't George use her? I could be completely wrong in this, but to me, it seems like this is one of George's gardening aspects. I'm not sure he ever intended for Maya to stick around this long. I don't know if she's going to really figure into the plot as in like she couldn't be replaced. It didn't seem like that at the beginning, is what I'm saying. It seemed early on she was just playing a bit part, intended to get across the history of Robert Baratheon and be part of the super strong early focus on bastards. She had that lightning quick relationship with Catelyn, which is another aspect of Sansa following in her mother's footsteps as we've spoken about before, and then she disappeared for the longest time. Then again, in all fairness, the area itself disappeared for the longest time, so we can't really hold that against her, can we? But remember, she wasn't immediately reintroduced when we returned to the Vale with Sansa. That was held off for Sansa's second feast chapter, although she was mentioned in the first. So, either way, whatever the cause of it is, it's lucky for us because we tend to like Maya. I do, anyway. And I think George saw an opportunity to hold it in the story for a bit longer, and he took it, and that seems to be extending into win, so great stuff. And we actually learned a bit more of Maya's backstory near the end of Feast, you'll remember, once we were introduced to fan favourite Miranda Royce, who told us of Maya's fondness for Mitchell Redfort. Let's also not forget that Lofa Brune, Peter Baelish's man, has a bit of a thing for her as well, just so we've got all our corners covered. But it's Mitchell, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with Mitchell, maybe you say Mitchell, I'm going to go with Mitchell, but it's the focus of Maya's first introduction here. Sansa believes the older girl is scowling because Mitchell is close by, and if you remember from Feast, Mitchell was ordered by his father to marry a daughter of Bronze John Royce, which Maya is obviously not very happy about. Like so many things, it seems like a passing comment at first glance. But we're six books in now. We know that no such thing really exists in these books. But even beyond what plot points this might intercede with later, the larger point is the establishment of theme. George is reminding us of the arena that Sansa is in now. We are at core, essentially. We are in the business of knowing people, knowing what their deal is, what their relationships are, what the background to every single microtransaction between two people means. 
Now Sansa, she's always been hyper aware of those things we just spoke about, all the way back to a Game of Thrones, especially during her imprisonment in King's Landing, even if at times she wasn't aware that she was aware, if you follow me, but we knew it was there. Lately though, after her talks with Littlefinger, she's realised how to start to use that skill, how to weaponise it even, and how worthy that skill can be. So George gives us an example from the off. Maya is scowling. Many, many characters would see that and think nothing of it. But Sansa not only recognises it in the first place, she tells us why she's scowling using her mental Rolodex. She knows the information about Maya. She keeps it near the surface. Right now, in this situation in the bedchamber, it's not useful at all. But she's learning that every single piece of knowledge can be useful in some way at some point. The end sentence of the first paragraph is Elaine knew. And that is very much the message of Sansa's entire arc. She knows. Remember, she still knows things that a lot of people don't. Very, very important things. She'll know so much more before long, most likely. And both of them probably are going to become really, really relevant again before we finish this book. So this is our Sansa now. The knowing one. The aware one. It's almost like she's been the awakened one, but she's awakened in the wrong body. She's in this wrong persona. It's very frustrating for us. But she herself is someone fully invested in this hurriedly assembling court that we have at the gates of the moon this gathering of the majority of the Vale's important people now we already had some talk of that during feast with the lost declarant but it will be very much the focus for the early sansa arc at least this coming together this culmination of people as again it's the arena it's the court we're being thrown right back into it most likely at the deep end. Indeed, this is Maya's purpose here early on in the chapter, as she informs them that Lady Anya Wainwood is now an hour away and that she'll be arriving soon with Harry the heir in tow. Aha! Okay then. That's another incredibly, incredibly important element to Sansa's arc, and likely a very high front runner for the important characters and wins that we haven't even met yet race. Yeah. That's a, that's a title, that one. Harry is going to be critical in the Vale plot and the plans of Peter Baelish and the future of Sansa. Again, we know this from the end of Feast, when Baelish did his little mustache twirl and explained to Sansa, or in fact he actually let her figure it out for herself, what his overall plan was. Again, I'll remind you, due to a heavily, heavily complicated inheritance tree that we aren't going to revisit now, Harry slash Harold Harding is actually Sweet Robin's heir and is much more suited to the role than his and Sansa's shared cousin. At the close of Sansa's last feast chapter, she's not only informed of this, but the fact that Littlefinger has arranged a marriage contract between her and Harry. Sansa connected the dots and figured that if Sweet Robin were to die, they'd have a marriage that unites the great powers of the North and the Vale, at least on paper, well, everything's being sorted out at Winterfell, but they don't know about that. Plus, they happen to have a friendly chum who put the whole thing together and owns the Riverlands. That's worth mentioning. Of course, Baelish corrected her, saying it was not if, but when Sweet Robin dies, confirming everything we had suspected since Storm about Littlefinger's intentions for the sickly little boy that he's already orphaned, as if that's not bad enough. Now he's going to kill the child as well. Hence, we see why Harry is massively important as an incoming player a potential husband for sansa a new puppet to rule the veil via a possible bridge back to the north as well and a whole bunch of other things too we have to super be looking out for this guy and it seems like he's on the horizon indeed we're going to talk about him more as we go now we are reminding ourselves of those facts about what's coming in wins and it's a very win storyline isn't it yes it's supposed to be the darkest book and i would say this storyline ticks the box 
So far in these preview chapters, that darkness has been mainly focused on the sheer amount of blood that will be shed over a marine. Although the possibility of child murder has also come up with Skahaz and the cupbearers and all those things we've discussed. But now we have another switch. Now our darkness is more about how a young, vulnerable orphan boy has been made ever sicker. Don't forget, yeah, they're poisoning him. They're making him sick on purpose. He has and will be manipulated and used. And he's apparently eventually going to be killed in order just to advance a social position. It's evil. It's evil of the highest order. And Sansa's unfortunately a part of it. It frames this opening scene differently once you remember all that. She's reading little Robert Aaron a story, full in the knowledge that he will soon be murdered for her benefit, and she's apparently going along with it. Now in fairness, we've not really been in her head since she learned of the plan. We don't know her explicit thoughts on it yet. Maybe she's not really absorbed the enormity of the situation. Maybe she thinks she can avoid it. All we know right now is that she appears to be complacent in the murder of a child. So you see what I was saying about that knife edge that Sansa dances upon. Her skills are improving. Her situation is looking to as well, sure. While we don't like the idea of Sansa being sold off to Harry, we much prefer it to sticking with Peter, and we do like the possibility of her identity being revealed and her therefore linking back up to North. In general, we like the powerful, self-aware, confident Sansa, but that's going to come at a price. I believe we said this at the time of going through her last feast chapter, but there is simply no way you go within a mile of the Peter Baelish school of political intrigue and come out on the other side morally clean. It doesn't happen. The guy is corrosive he is rotten the mere contact with him will burn away at your soul and sansa is probably going to show us that there are positives to come from it sure but sansa is going to go through a moral gauntlet as littlefinger's protege and again like Aya, some of her actions will end up being morally questionable more than that in fact i'd say she appears much closer to the darker edge than Aya does so far which is probably saying something and that does link into the whole idea of dark starks that i've spoken about a whole bunch of times i won't go through it now Again, I just don't think they come through it clean. They're going to have to pay something for the eventual good I believe they'll give to the world overall. But that certainly fits in, doesn't it? And a sure head start to that eventuality is to listen to a word that comes out of Peter Baelish's mouth. So that's a pretty grim cloud there to come so soon after the initial excitement of getting Sansa back in our lives. If we're honest, we should just pity her. Littlefinger has done more than enough to utterly ruin her life, but he's not finished yet. He has the access to corrupt that soul as well, so we have to be aware of that all the way through. We have to feel sorry for her, we have to hope she can break out of it. For now, in the interim, we return to Sansa being aware of all and every relationship and how to dance the dance of managing people. In this case, it's the fact that Maya didn't just mention that Anya Wainwood is coming, but also named Harry, and Sansa knowing that this will not be well received by young Sweet Robin. So again, George is hitting on those themes early on. Sansa knows Robin. She knows how to manipulate him. She's aware of all the relationships that he has in general. And she does more sizing up of Maya when she's confused over Robert's angry reaction. It just goes to show Sansa's mastery. Really, Maya should be way ahead of Sansa. She's lived here all her life. She knows all the people. She's older. Yet Sansa is the one in the know. She's the one with the higher position and more influence already. And some of that speaks to Sansa's skills. Some of that to the extra leg up that she's been given due to her name and who she knows. Either way, I really like the potential dynamic between these two, as in Maya and Sansa, and I hope we get more of it. Not only the fact that they are both bastards, at least publicly in terms of Elaine, but they're actually super important bastards as well. I like to think that Sansa, fairly or unfairly, sees some of her sister in Maya, despite, again, Maya being so much older. Sometimes I wonder if she's just a short step away from calling her Maya Muleface. Yeah, I could see that happening. 
and before Maya exits the scene, she quickly hints about the fact that a tourney is to be held soon, and then she's essentially dismissed by Sansa. And Maya might be happy for the escape route, but it's another sign of how high up Sansa is in this household. We saw that transformation in Feast, we saw the self-confidence building, but this is another rung on that ladder. Now then, the tourney. Tourney talk, yes, we could do lots of it now, we'll probably come to it more later, it's going to come up a bit more obviously in the chapter yet, but very quickly, let's just cover how very, very fitting that this is for Sansa. Tawny talk again. Of all the characters we have, yes, we do have several POVs who are actually involved in tourneys as participants, but the first and second ones that we actually saw on page, the only ones we've ever seen on page really, we've seen through Sansa's eyes. That was a big part of her dreams of what the world could be and what tourneys were in general. So it's very, very fitting that we're going to get another one now and that we'll be really, really in a great place to examine how much Sansa's changed by how differently she looks and acts at said tourney and how she'll be there manipulating things rather than being the wide-eyed innocent that she was back at the beginning. I'm not really sure there could be a better way to show her change. And yeah, those are the only two tourneys we've seen, aren't they? Okay, Catelyn kind of caught the end of the melee at least at, at Bitterbridge, but as you know, set up proper tourneys go, we have the tourney of the hand back in Game of Thrones, we have Joffrey's name day at the beginning of Clash, which was a pretty pathetic affair, but Sansa was there, so yeah, that makes sense. And it's also just the idea that tourneys still exist, that being super weird. Since the last time we saw one, we've been exploring a world just destroyed by war and war crimes and starvation and winter is coming and all these other things. So it's just odd to think that such a concept can still exist somewhere within all that chaos. But then that tells you a lot about how the Vale's been doing, isn't it? How removed from everything it is. There's probably something in there relatable to many of us in the real world, I'm sure, about just things that seem so far away in memory. Yeah, yeah, we can probably relate to that. But like I said, we'll come to that in more detail in a moment. For now, with Maya gone... Robert expands on why he hates Harry so much. He gives this quote. He calls me cousin, but he's just waiting for me to die so he can take the Eerie. He thinks I don't know, but I do. Yeah, I actually find this pretty funny. I quite like the idea of the little kid that they're trying to dose out of being an issue somehow being way more aware than they'd ever guess and actually guessing a pretty decent chunk of their plan even before it's enacted. That's just quite funny that Peter Baelish, the master plotter, his whole idea has already been identified by this little kid. And this is where we see evidence, unfortunately, of Sansa and her gaslighting. I'm not sure what else we can call it. It's where she becomes a bit problematic, as she tells Robert that he's basically dreaming it all up and everything's fine, don't worry about it. Indeed, she's more concerned about her own fortunes with Harry and whether he'll like her, reminding us of her immediate mission from Littlefinger to woo him, to woo Harry. And yes, it is super, super creepy to tell a child, which Sansa is, remember, that that is her mission, to go and woo someone, to go and make yourself attractive to someone. Uh, no, I don't even want to get into it. So now, Robert goes on with his displeasure and insistence, and he also lets on that a large part of it is not wanting to lose Sansa as his one comfort in the world. For a kid who's already experienced such loss, it's hard to disagree with him, isn't it? Unfortunately, Sansa's mental thoughts are still pretty much just concerned for her own well-being. Although, it's also hard to blame her, given the need for self-preservation that she had to form over the years. It's not her fault she's been put in a position of care that she doesn't deserve to be in. It's a very much natural response of taking the opportunity to not be the victim, in her eyes at least, for once. I think you know we're not pointing the blame towards Sansa. I think it's pretty clear in whose direction that needs to be channeled. Pretty, pretty damn clear, I'd say. Instead of thinking about Robert, she's thinking about how no one can marry her yet, 
because there's been no confirmation of Tyrion's death, so technically she's still married. Although to me that seems easily workable to be honest. Baelish has got around much tighter red tape than that before. I would assume at some point they can just play on the extreme likelihood that Tyrion's died. I mean, it certainly seems like it, isn't it? No one's seen or heard from him yet for ages now. And that kind of thing must happen fairly often, especially in wartime. Husbands or fiancés, they go off, they die. Maybe people don't find the body, but they're going to assume, okay, they entered a massive battlefield, they're probably dead. I'm sure there is some kind of precedence for that. In the meantime, Sansa continues trying to quiet Robert, especially on the subject of her marrying him instead, offering the convenient excuse of her bastard birth, even though she knows it isn't true. I think at this point, actually, Sansa kind of surprises us because in her mind, when Robert is saying that he doesn't care about any of that, that he says he loves her best of anyone, in her mind she thinks of him as such a little fool. And yeah, I just think that comes off as quite harsh and quite mean and not something we would have expected from Sansa, really. But again, that's her progression. That is what's happening. She will start to think of people as tools and beneath her because she's around Peter Baelish and that's how he acts. So that makes complete sense. Of course, that's what's going to happen. Unfortunately, it's just a byproduct, but it does. I think that really does stick out to us and make us think, oh, oh dear, that's, that's not very nice. That's not good, is it? Now, Outwardly, the thing she's saying out loud, her explanation is patient and logical and would absolutely be true if she really was Elaine. The Vale Lords would react. She would be in danger. It would never work. Of course it wouldn't. Now, their reactions to knowing her true birth, they would be quite different, as we'll probably see at some point. But again, the prospect of losing his last tether unnerves Robert and therefore his sickness returns, and Sansa has to work her magic control of him to keep him steady. Remember those shaking sicknesses episode D that he gets because of well because he probably would have anyway but definitely aren't being helped by peter baelish and his dosing to control him she promises a true-born wife for his eventual bride again knowing full well this never going to happen because he's going to be killed soon in response robert falls back on his old threat of making people fly that's what he says when she said when sansa objects that a bastard could never marry lord revan and she'd be in danger he says no 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 i'll protect you but i'll marry you if anyone tries to stop us, then they can fly. And we know why that is his fallback. We know why that is his thing. Now, obviously, it hasn't clicked in his mind yet that they are now at the bottom of the mountain, so no one's flying anywhere. But it's just another tether that he's trying to cling to. It's another part of his old life that he's lost and he doesn't want to let go of. He has so little agency or control, despite a lifetime, a short lifetime, but still a lifetime, of being told that that's what he has in abundance. That was his weapon, as we saw in, with Tyrion in the old days. Lysa told him that if trouble ever came, they could just make it fly away. They didn't have to face anything. So that's the opinion that he built up. That's, of course, what he believed. He's only a child. Well, trouble is coming, or has come, and he seeks a weapon. Making people fly, that's the only one he's ever been told about, so he's going to stick with it. But really, it's just another reason to pity him, isn't it? He's had all these things ripped away from him. Now he senses another. He wants to stop it somehow. He doesn't know how. He doesn't really have any way to make it happen. So he just relies on the old threat, even though it's, of course, not possible. Although I will say, it is quite interesting that he does want to make people fly just before we get some weird night talk again for what it's worth. But we'll come back to that in a minute. It does relate back to what Lysa originally wanted. You'll remember, this is what was supposed to happen. Sansa was supposed to marry Sweet Robin. And Sansa notes that, to be fair. She remembers. But she also distracts herself by thinking about Sweet Woman's actual look now and how it's getting wild. His hair is long, his chest is white. He's starting to look a bit weird, to be honest. And, well, Littlefinger's probably happy about that. It sends the message, doesn't it? He does not look like a lord. He does not look like someone who can rule the Vale. Therefore, that undermines the confidence of everyone else. It pushes them towards Peter Baelish a lot quicker. But I think, actually, this long hair, this white chest, it makes me think of him as the 
little potted plant version of a weirwood tree. Let's not forget his little weirwood connection and everything that happened with Bran, those connecting theories. Is there more importance in this little scene of thinking about hair? Is it something to do with hair as strength or hair as worth? We've covered that with Cersei recently at the end of Dance. Sansa's had to change her own hair. There's probably something to uncover, but we'll move on for now. While thinking on his hair, though, Sansa does say if he lives long enough, than any wife would like his hair. So clearly she's not thinking that his murder is 100% confirmed, which is probably quite relieving for us actually, that at least alleviates some of those worries that she's just going on full on in the knowledge that he's going to die soon. But is that because she's just in denial? She's just like, no, 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 Peter wouldn't actually do that, I'm sure he'd be fine. Or is there some kind of plan? Is she thinking, well, if I do this, then we won't need to kill him or something else? We don't know yet. For now, she continues to try and reassure him, to try and shift his attention away from her to the potential of the future. But no, he's got it in his mind now. He wants to use his authority. And again, that makes sense for a kid who needs some control over his chaotic world. And let's also not forget, he has been told that he's the most important thing in the world from day one, just like Joffrey was. So it's only fair enough that he has these responses. He's still very, very young. In keeping with that theme of him being a cut above and allowed special treats, he introduces the idea of having a common woman. Harry himself has one, he says, so why can't he? And again, it's pretty funny to me that Sweet Robin knows so much and is so much more a stubborn fawn than he really has any right to be. I really hope he goes on living for this purpose at the very least, just to annoy Peter Baelish. I'd really like that. But how does he know about these common women and all these other ideas? Well, Sansa, because she's smart. Well, Sansa tells us it is Benjicott. Benjicott is the leak. Benjicott has been whispering in the boy's ear. And who is Benjicott? Well, he is the fool of the Gates of the Moon. And I believe this is his first ever mention, at least by name. But it's pretty interesting, isn't it, that another one, a leaky one at that, another fool, should be on Sansa's radar, given all that occurred with Dantas Hollard. That's another great tool for comparing the Sansa that was and the Sansa that is. Just remember how she used to interact with Dontos, how young she seemed, how unaware and frightened. And I mean, that was fair enough. She actually had a reason to be like that. But now compare it to this one, to how this Sansa thinks. I mean, they're, they're just miles apart, aren't they? And to really hit that home for us is at this point that Sansa takes her manipulating of Robert a step further by feigning offence at what he said about common women and fathering a bastard. And Robert, uh, the poor sod, he's genuinely upset about the idea that he might have hurt her feelings. He's stricken, it says, and really, you have to say that this is some cruel work from Sansa here. Again, it's not her fault. The blame lies squarely with Peter fucking Baelish, but it is still cruel and unwarranted and just pitiful for Robert. Now, Sansa is pulling this trick to get a bit of separation, to get those ideas out of Robert's head, but she's also using it as an escape excuse, a valid reason to get up and leave and kick off the rest of the day. Again, we can't blame her for wanting to do that, but it's also just so harsh on Sweet Robin. He's left feeling awful and guilty and alone, and he's worried that he's going to lose the only thing he has left. Pity is the only thing we can offer him at this point, really, quite a lot of it. But with the first scene gone, pity can probably be replaced by a different emotion as Sansa goes on the hunt for the man who has brought about all these horrible situations. She checks the solar first, but has no luck. Instead, she finds Oswell Catablack. Yes, remember, he's part of this scene now, He's freshly arrived from Goldtown, he's left the fingers, he's in this side of the veil now. And that, I think, signals a certain confidence from Littlefinger to be bringing his actual household out here now. As far as we know, he's never done that before. Obviously, we were told about this in Feast, but I think that's, yeah, it just signals a little bit. Maybe it's overconfidence, we can hope. So with no Littlefinger found, Sansa instead gives us some better details on her current surroundings. The Eyrie has been left behind to the grip of winter, but down at the gates of the moon, it's not so bad just yet. As Sansa describes for us with the sun slanting through the windows and the thought of food still growing out there in the 
the fields. But beyond the mere weather, there's just the general sounds of castle life coming back to her. Washerwomen laughter, the sound of swords. Good sounds, she calls it. And why? It's because it reminds her of Winterfell and of home. This has always been what Sansa has sought. Like so many younglings, she didn't immediately realise that she already had it back where she came from, back at home, but she began to appreciate that more when the Red Keep revealed what it truly was. When Sansa first came to the Eyrie, and then again later in Feast, she took a few paragraphs each time to focus on the feel of the place, the emptiness, the silence, and her mother did a similar thing when she visited before as well. So it makes sense that Sansa is doing the same in this new place that actually does hit all of her personal criteria. And she tells us as much right here of precisely how this is the kind of atmosphere that she's been seeking. The people, and the gossip, and the intrigue, and the near sport of it all. This is her arena, we've always known that. Now more than ever of course, and she feels at home in it. So again, it's the double-edged sword because we love that Sansa has found that happiness and comfort and confidence, but we worry about how it will be used. And this quote, I feel, does a great job of hitting from both sides. Elaine loved it here. She felt alive again for the first time since her father, since Lord Eddard Stark, had died. So, as you can see, on one side, great. Sansa feeling alive again. Superb. We love that. But on the other hand, she not only refers to herself as Elaine again, and quite naturally as well, but she also corrects herself on referring to Ned as his proper name, like a stranger rather than a father. And that one hurts us deep for obvious reasons. But then again, we could choose to take the view that Elise is still coming up as a hiccup in her mind. It's not so deeply buried as to be natural yet, so there's some hope there, of course there is. With that musing done, Sansa happens to pick up Littlefinger's lineup sheets for the upcoming tournament. 64 competitors, so it is no small thing by any means, and definitely an indication that George quite likes college basketball tournaments. That's what I'm taking from this. And this is where it can be sometimes a little tricky to remember what we are supposed to know going into this preview chapter and what is new information. How much were we told in that quick meeting with Baelish at the end of Elaine 2 in Feast? Case in point, I thought this tourney idea was mentioned very quickly in there. You know, among all the instructions of how to properly kiss Baelish and all these other disgusting things. But I was incorrect. We do get hints about Harry and his bastards and a few other things. But this tournament, this new brotherhood of winged knights, is completely fresh to us here. So obviously, we've got to cover it in some detail. And it is all very, very interesting to us. A new company of knights. A new, de facto, Kingsguard, really. So yes definitely interesting and definitely clever. There are several points to this. Let's start with the why from Peter Baelish's approach. He is in the middle of trying to unite the veil beneath him, while at the same time not publicly declaring that it's him they'd be beneath. We know that was the focus of his conversations with the Lord's declarant. We know from other, later conversations, that he's already started working his trade on several of those Lords, but he's far from done. So perhaps in the same spirit that Rhaegar once had, according to Aerys anyway, he's setting up a tourney to gather the majority of the kingdom's important people so he has a chance to talk shop and bring more onto his side. At the same time, he's bringing a specific subset onto that side. The Knights of the Vale, that ever-silent gun that's been waiting to pop for the entire series now. You will recall from Catelyn's visit to the Eyrie how even way back then the many lords and warriors of the Vale were very, very restless. They wanted to get out there and knock some skulls together and stretch their legs and generally get involved, but Lysa wouldn't let them. Well, that was back then, years ago now, when barely anything had happened yet. Fast forward all the way to present day, and they still haven't been able to do anything. They've been champing at the bit this whole time, their testosterone overflowing and their sword arms itching. Come on, let us out to play. Well, they haven't been allowed out, but Peter Baelish comes along, and no, he's not offering a war, but he's offering the next best thing. You can come along and show off and do your nightly things and indulge in a bit of competitive spirit. After years of boredom, that alone will get many in his camp, just him providing the opportunity. 
On top of that, the younger ones, the younger knights that will come, well, we know how tourneys work for them. We were shown back in Game of Thrones. The green boys, they see a stage and they want to get on it. They want to prove that they belong with their men. They want to make a name for themselves and perhaps even a quick buck or two. They're even more interested in everybody else. And that's all just for a normal tourney. But there's more than that here. There's this extra caveat, or extra carrot if you will, of being named to this brotherhood. Of this extra title that no one has held for hundreds of years if they ever did. It's another honour for you, or for your family. It's something else to aim for. It is of very, very high interest to competitors, patrons, and spectators as well. Everyone's going to be getting into it. There'll be lots of gossip of who will get in, or who deserves, or who are you betting on. Peter Baelish knows how these things work. So it's very, very clever for getting everyone in the mood, and then Peter playing on that mood that they've been forced into for years now. He'll say so. He knows their mindset, he knows how to take advantage of it. I mean, that is his shtick, isn't it? That's always what he does. But what about the formation of this Kingsguard? That in itself is another shrewd move in my mind, because it legitimises the veil, it sets them apart. No other kingdom's lord has his own company of protective knights. They wouldn't dare. That's a thing for kings, that's what Targaryens do, or Baratheons now in this case. Not lords or wardens. Now, I'm sure other realm lords have their own guard, sure, but they don't get an official named company with special helms. No, 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 that's too presumptuous, that's too above your station. But Peter Beige is going for it. He's going to play on the pomposity and pride of the Vale Lords, which we know they have in spades. Let them think, subtly, that they are equal to, or even better than, the Iron Throne. Again, play on the mindset. We know this is a game of inches, so okay, maybe it is a small way that you're better than the Iron Throne, but that matters. We know it's a game of symbols, and seeds like this matter, and they grow. All you've got to do is introduce the idea, and let them run away with it, which they will, we know they will, that's what these people do. So it just widens a wedge between the crown and the veil, most likely meaning that the veil will rely on Baelish more and more. Or, if Littlefinger wants to jump ship at any point, he could point at them as rebels, up-jumping themselves, and it's something he didn't want to be a part of, we could easily see that excuse. Much more likely though, it might be a setup for him seceding from the Iron Throne at some point down the line. Yeah, that's pretty major, and I'm not saying that's his plan, either now or later, but we know from Feast how his mind works. Keep the door open, do the unexpected, so this absolutely could be some setup for that. Uh, it'd be incredibly interesting to see, and to be honest, the more I think about that, yeah, the more I can see it, I could, do, I could see him doing something like that. At the same time, it's a playing of the people again, and getting more people on his side of the line. These knights aren't stupid, and neither are the families who'd like to have a member included. They know a spot in this brotherhood could be bought with a favour here or a donation there, and they likely know the man they'd need to come and see. We've seen the same thinking from John Collington. He'll use the open spaces to buy political favour and shore up some allies. Baelish, he's going to do exactly the same. It does make you laugh though to think that we might have as many as three separate Kingsguards walking around soon enough. Maybe more, who knows. I mean Daenerys is going to be bringing her own isn't she, so yeah, four at least. Now that's just the beginning of the political side, the thinking of this, but this is also about being practical. Baelish will have seven, actually eight, we'll come back to that in a minute, fine soldiers that will, in all but name, be under his command. I didn't think I need to tell you that that's a valuable thing. He might want a bit of protection here and there, but it's also about protecting his assets. The Brotherhood is being formed to protect Robert Aaron. Now we know the plan is for the Brotherhood to fail at his first hurdle and for Sweet Robin to die. And that'll be a good opportunity to lambast the knights and to get them attentive. Maybe even fire one or perhaps even frame one for the job. That could work. It'll ensure that they're going to try much, much harder with their next assignment, Harry the Heir. And by extension, his new planned bride, Sansa. The one precious to Baelish for more than one reason will now have her own guard and be protected. It keeps her safe. 
It lends her legitimacy again if you want to secede, or perhaps if you want to go north, maybe, and convince everyone that this is someone you want ruling Winterfell for you. Look, he's got eight guards instead of seven. He must be valuable. Yeah, that probably would work. It's all very, very clever. It's all very, very Peter fucking Baelish. And of course, that all helps out with making Sansa ever more thankful and impressed with you. Hey, this guy got me guards. I should thank him. So yeah, that's good to keep her stringing... So yeah, that's good to keep stringing her along, of course. And that's all before we get to the formatical. Like we mentioned a bit earlier, tourneys. They make up a big part of our Song of Ice and Fire journey. Historically, yeah, definitely check. Presently, well, I don't know if you count it as present, but early on, sure. The hands tourney was a major part of a Game of Thrones that probably doesn't really get the recognition it deserves in terms of really opening up the world of Westeros to us, how this society works. It showed us countless big-name characters for the first time, and it was especially important in the formation and the growing up of Sansa. The comparison between that and Joffrey's name day in tournament was incredibly useful for showing us how far everything was already swirling downward by that point, and was again also very, very important for showing off the new phase of Sansa's life, that of the prisoner. We raved at the time about her showing political wisdom through even those dire circumstances. Naturally, there hasn't been much time for Turney since, what with the war and the famine and the invasions. It seems almost ludicrous that they still exist, but here we are again, like we mentioned earlier. And we can be sure that it is going to be another major Sansa moment. A Turney simply wouldn't mean as much through any other POV's eyes. Sure, it would be great to see Pariston actually in a Turney again, but it wouldn't mean as much. Should we get to this turning actually going ahead, I think you can be assured it's going to be one of the more famous chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire, and certainly within Sansa's arc. The comparisons that we can draw between this and the hands turning, the thematic links between both what happens out in the field and up in the stands, the open display of Sansa's new skills and how she's going to wield them, I mean this really is the best place to to show that off this is very much going to be her opening ceremony her own olympics and i can't get across how amazing and famous the chapter could be it really could be one of the classics so much can come out of it hundreds of mini plot threads but sansa is our focus and there's going to be so much to see from her maybe we'll even get really lucky and she'll choose that moment to be the one to step out of little finger's shadow but probably not that'll probably have to wait for later and we should and we should save our talk of that for later as well Right, that really was a lot of talk on that tourney, wasn't it? And I actually halted in my reading of the chapter to write all that. All those thoughts, they came from just that single paragraph, such as the power of George. And as I read on now, I can see that Sansa herself confirms many of the points we just made, so it's always nice to have that validation, isn't it? But of course, there are always some extra gems that I didn't consider, so let's tackle those as well. Sansa begins by telling us that this is a veil-wide event. It's captured the minds of young men and families across the kingdom, almost like a fairy tale. And one of those key little gems is that these Kingsguard, these potential Kingsguard, are only expected to serve for three years at a time. Again, I have to admit this is a very clever caveat. We've discussed before how a major weakness of the Night's Watch and the Kingsguard is making people serve for life. It simply isn't realistic. Now this idea doesn't solve all the problems that comes with that, but it does tackle a few. It gets you young, eager knights instead of those fully spent and uncaring like a Boris Blunt or a Meryn Tran. It ensures a full effort of three years because you probably get a decent retirement package, don't you? And to be honest, you'll probably get more than a few wanting to stay on because they've been given the choice and the freedom and they'll be like, no, 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 I want to keep doing this. I want to do more than three years. I'm sure that would come up. Next, Sansa relates to us how successful the idea has been. As we just said, Baelish is playing on the restlessness, the eagerness, and we got it near word for word apparently, so well done us. But something we forgot, this is also just a great way to get Harry near Sansa so that she can work her, well, her magic. Yes, again, it is creepy to think about, but that is what he's trying to do. But then 
we're thrown a curveball when we're told that this was actually sounds of suggestion, not little fingers. Now that sounds about right, doesn't it? Intellectual theft, yeah, that's probably another one of Peter Baelish's constant strategies. Now, okay, to be fair, it was his decision to take up the idea, to put it into reality, and he would have been thinking about all those reasons that we just covered when he did. Plus, for all we know, he planted the notion in Sansa's head, and this is a bit of an unreliable narrator deal, but whichever it is, the reasoning and the cleverness still stands. And Sansa's proud. Whoever the core idea belonged to, Sansa definitely takes ownership of some of the minor details, and that's a lot easier to get on board with. The idea of the winged knights, the prizes, the effect that this could have on Sweet Robin himself, that's something we didn't think of. He seeks safety? Well, he's going to get eight knights, that's going to make him feel safer. Sansa might be thinking they will help him. She might be thinking it'll buy her some freedom. Baelish is probably thinking it'll put their lord in a false sense of security. There's benefits for everybody, apparently. But the man himself or rather the bastard himself, is still missing. So Sansa continues her search through the busy castle, reminding us of Nestor Royce on the way and the mysterious tapestries that have made their way up from the Red Keep to the Gates of the Moon. Yeah, that's a fan favourite, those tapestries. Nestor is telling people that they belong to a king, so we again have that little sniff of trying to set themselves apart, trying to make themselves feel a bit more kingly. So again, I have to suspect that Baelish wants to break away from the Iron Throne, especially when he joins Sansa and Harry together with his own Riverlands claim. I'm very, very interested in this idea now, I must say. But with no Baelish in the castle, we head to the yard to see the preparations going up for the tourney itself, and it allows Sansa to do a bit of her favourite hobby, sigil watching. She identifies some of the competitors she can see at the far end of the yard as they practice by doing just that, looking at the sigils, thinking, hey, I knew who that is. Well, let's go through who she sees, shall we? She sees the Bells of the Belmores. Yes, the family from Strong Song. Unsurprisingly, they have bells on their sigil. That's how she identifies them. And we're going to have to hope that John Collinger runs into one of them at some point. I'd like to see that reaction. Lord Benadar Belmore, he was one of the Lord's declarant, you'll remember. And he was actually very anti-Peter and pro Yon Royce at the beginning. He was, in fact, the first one to arrive at the Eyrie. He was the one to block off the castle from its food supply. But he was also one of the first to hop over the Team Baelish because he can be bought. And the other Belmore we know about is Marwyn. He was Knight of the Gate until Baelish came and basically sacked him. So that's interesting to see how that family, at least, is pretty split on what to think of Peter Baelish, how they affect the proceedings going forward. Next up is the Lindeleys. Now, we don't know much about this house at all, really. It's not even mentioned by name until Feast, although Tyrion does spy their arms in the Eyrie. They come from Snakewood, and they have a pretty cool sigil themselves, one that you'd think might be more at home in Dawn, but it's still pretty cool. The lone Lindeley that we know of is Terence, one of Sweet Robin's new squires that we met in the descent from the Eyrie. And we should note that Baelish counts House Lindeley amongst his friends even before the meeting with the Lord's Declarant. So again, something to keep an eye on. A friend of Peter's, always close and within range of Robert Aaron as a squire. Hmm, yeah, that's, that's a squire I might not trust. Remember, Peter Baelish was in King's Landing when Robert Baratheon died. He knows how squires could be used. Next up is a brand new house in Breakstone, House Breakstone. That's one we've never heard of before. Now, we know the general idea is that we have two books left and, well, assumedly the scope will start to contract as we return to places of old for the ending. But don't be fooled, everybody. George is never going to stop expanding this world as we go, even if we do redirect to where we've been before. There will always be newbies to meet. And to be honest, I think this Sansa arc is going to be one of the premier frontiers in that regard. She's going to meet plenty of new people in this tourney alone. Who knows what she'll be doing after that. We have only one name in relation to this bunch, Sir Edmund, Sir Edmund Breakstone, who will come along a little later in the chapter. Okay, let's switch a new house for one we definitely know of, House 
to let. Yes, way more interesting, isn't it? House to let. The family of Dolores Ed, fan favourite. Although we don't actually know how Ed fits into the family tree, but still very, very exciting. We've got to wonder, we've just got to hope, really, haven't we? That they're all going to bring the last like he does. Or maybe he's a diamond in the rough instead. We'd like to know the truth of that. Now, something important to remember here is that the Tillets are sided with the Royces, so in theory are still opposition to Team Baelish, but that remains to be seen because we haven't actually met any of the Tillets yet. But we do know of Lord Ufa, thanks to the Feast Appendix, and we'll soon meet young Andrew, a knight, Andrew Tillet, so lots to look forward to. And finally, Mitchell Redfort is down there as well, and he's favoured, apparently, to do well in this tournament and join the Winged Knights, so we'll have to see how Maya reacts to that later on. So we've got all those knights, all those lads down there practising, getting ready for the tourney, but still no Peter Baelish, lucky us. And even better, we now get reunited with another fan favourite, Miranda Royce. Yes, she's back. The clear star of Elaine 2 in Feast for Crows. Miranda, who seemed capable in pretty much any situation the last time we met her, is now not so subtly signalling for rescue to her new bestie. But rescue from whom, you ask? Well, we've got another two newbies, which again, we can expect to be a common occurrence in early Sansa chapters. I mean, there are 64 competitors headed their way, to not even talk about their families and squires, whoever else is coming with them. Lots and lots of people coming this way. But these two, well, we've got one who's an older, more grizzled chap whose physical peak appears to be behind him. The other one is his opposite. He's a young sapling with pimples, one whose Sansa's incredible observational skills identify as a Shet of Goldtown. That's the younger one. Both of these men, unfortunately, are not skilled in hiding their intentions. Their eyes do a bit too much talking, if you get what I mean. The older one, he does it with Miranda's chest, the younger with Sansa's in a moment. And unfortunately, uncomfortably, this is something else we can probably expect quite a lot of in Sansa's wins arc, as if we don't already have enough of it with Bloody Baelish. Yes, lots of eager young men, like we just said, are coming their way, and Sansa is maturing as a woman. Like we've had to do with Danny in the past, she will only become more and more sexualised as we go. Although in fairness, it's not like we've had a shortage of that in Sansa's chapters already, even when she's very, very young. It's just going to become more frequent now, we're going to have to put up with it more. So we will feel uncomfortable at times, indignant in others, or just plain angry here and there. Or at least I will, as these green knights and their hormones reduce all of Sansa's wonderful, amazing, deep character into a rather singular track. But hopefully we'll also see plenty of her putting such fools into their place. Which she begins to do here, as the Shet boy starts throwing countless flopping courtesies her way. Younger Sansa, she would have blushed and gotten tongue-tied and had no answer. But this version, she answers smoothly, coolly and immediately. More importantly, she's smart enough to flag the fact that because this guy is from Goldtown, which is where Elaine Stone is supposed to be from, she'll have to be extra careful around him should she arouse any suspicion or poke any holes in her story. So that's another example of Sansa just being so much more aware now, so plotting and calculating. She's always, always thinking. You can literally see her developing this frozen mask to hide behind with this vague smile that we're told about, one that Peter Baelish has surely perfected. Using the excuse of looking for Littlefinger, the two young women are able to escape the searching eyes for at least a little while. On the way, Miranda informs us that the older man was Ossifer Lips and names the Goldhound Shet as Ufa. Yeah, another Ufa. Both of them, assumedly with many others, are hoping to earn Miranda's hand in marriage, hence what they were up to. It's another draw for this tourney, isn't it? There's far more than one type of prize to be won. It's the social event of, well, several years now. You absolutely have to be there. It is the big thing. The talk between the girls continues to concern those who have either arrived or will do soon. It starts with talk of some sistermen, then gets far more interesting with the fact that Anya Wainwood is on the way like we've already established. 
Miranda isn't overly hyped about the prospect of her sons, of the Wainwood sons, but there is another coming with them, isn't there? The man of the hour, you might say. Yes, Harry Harding is coming, and Miranda is jovially complaining about how Elaine has stolen the top draft prospect away, as he was the one that Miranda actually wanted. Yeah, it's a real Zion Williamson uh, situation going on here, isn't it? On the surface, it's just an off-the-cuff joke from Miranda, but Sansa's radar says there's actually more basis for it under the surface, and Miranda is generally annoyed. We'll have to wait and see if this actually ends up forming a concealed rift between the two friends, if they'll even end up going head-to-head -head for Harry. That would be a shame, considering that Sansa actually has a proper friend for once, but we do have to consider it, and that would be quite fitting for the, for the theme of what's going on here, isn't it? That there's no such thing as a friend. Trust no one. Everyone's a pawn. Everyone's a piece. Yeah, I could see Sansa maybe even continuing a little dark streak and betraying Miranda or setting up Miranda for a fall in some way or something like that. Anything to get the prize. We could easily see Sansa having to take that mindset. In the meantime, Miranda is looking elsewhere, back across the yard to the practicing knights where a proper duel is going on. Out of the two combatants, well, Sansa cannot identify one of them, but she knows the other is Sir Lynn Corbray, and therefore correctly guesses that the other guy, whoever he is, is screwed. And she's proven correct straight off. The other guy is on the ground, bleeding, even with the use of blunted swords, and Lynn Corbray looks as dangerous as ever. Sansa and Miranda are smart enough to know that his loyalty can be bought with much-needed coin, and that this is one night that they couldn't tempt with their bodies, and Peter Baelish, we know, is well aware of both facts. So Sansa and Miranda, they've been watching and they're talking about it and that draws Corbray's attention, he notices. So he comes over, he says hello. And I mean, I think the first thing to identify is just that Sansa replies straight up. She says, hello, well struck, Sir Lynn. I mean, that alone is quite the advancement for Sansa. Again, remember what she used to be like, how she would have acted before. I mean, she's always been able to talk to people. She's always known how to do that. But she's been much more reserved. She's been much more frightened. As recently as Feast, she's very, very frightened of this guy. Now she's quite happy to talk to him in front of everyone. Now that's just the beginning, that's just the opening sentence. But then when she she identifies firstly this guy that Sir Lynn's just beaten, that's Sir Owen. So again, she's identifying people. But she gives the compliment on him knocking him out. And Lynn Corbray, well, he's not a humble fellow, let's say that. And he proves as much. He says, yeah, this guy had no business fighting me. I'm way too good. And then what happens with Sansa in her own mind? There's a bit more interesting. I'll give you the quote here. She says, or she thinks, there is truth in that, Elaine thought. But some demon of mischief was in her that morning. So she gave Selene a thrust of her own. Smiling sweetly, she said, My lord father tells me your brother's new wife is with child. Corbray gave her a dark look. Okay, so this is what we're talking about. This is what we call core intrigue. This is the plotting, the planning, the, the subtle stuff. A thrust of her own. Well, indeed, doesn't that just sum up Sansa's arc? No, she doesn't wield the sword. She's not got a needle. No, she's not got the mystical power. She's not the king of something. She's not a lord commander. She doesn't have dragons. But she has the thrusts of her own. Very, very different thrusts, but no less important, especially in this arena. So this is a really important passage, I think, for seeing this. And there's also that line, some demon of mischief is in her this morning. So we can see that for now in her, still she's still a child, she knows that. She sees it in a childlike way. She sees it as mischief. She sees it as a game to some extent, which is what Peter Bayer sells it as. What remains to be seen by us is how long it will remain mischief before it becomes much more sinister, or at least until Sansa recognises it much more, it's much more sinister. I'm not talking about this particular incident. I mean, she is just having mischief at this point, but the, the structure of it, the go-tos that she's going to have they will become more sinister, much more important as we go. 
And again, this demon of mischief is not dealing just with a lowly squire or a maid or anything like that. This is Sir Lynn Corbray, a very, very dangerous, frightening man. And yet Sansa has no qualms about bothering him, trying to rile him up. It's very, very different to what we had before. And not only that, is she's good at it. She knows how. She knows, again, what everyone's deal is. She knows where the chink in the armour is, and she identifies it here. She knows the family situation, the Corbrays. We tackled it a bit in Feast. We know this isn't good news for Selin. We know it's going to bother him, and so does Sansa. And again, very, very important. Let's look at the wording. Smiling sweetly, she says this. She's got that mask on. She's got the Peter Baelish mask on. And she probably knows, not only does the smiling sweetly kind of paint her in the innocence, but it almost makes it worse when you're seeing someone say something that you know, they know, is bothering you but you can't say it out loud because they're just smart. They're just saying something that perfectly fits in conversation. This would be a nice thing to say, wouldn't it? But Lincoln Bray knows, that Sansa knows, it's not nice. That it's not, it's getting under his skin. So again, it's just layer upon layer upon layer of court intrigue and court politics and Sansa just being the master player. And when Corbray replies, when he snaps back, well, she identifies. She said, oh, yeah, that is an open wound. That's what she calls it. So not only did she identify it in the first place, but now she's confirmed. Oh, yeah, file that away in the file of facts. That is something to use later. That's a weakness. I can maybe use this at some point down the road. That is very, very Peter Baelish thinking, isn't it? And from there, she reminds us of that background of why this is annoying at Sir Lynn so much, because if Lionel, his brother, yeah, again, you'll remember how annoying these namings of the Corbrays are. If Lionel hadn't had a child, then Sir Lynn would remain as heir. Obviously, that has not happened. Lionel has now found a second wife who has obviously now given him a child or, or looks to be giving him a child in the future anyway. And that was actually, Sansa reminds us, brought about by Peter Baelish. He set up that marriage for Lionel Corbray. And with that knowledge, again, Sansa makes another thrust. She smiles, again, very, very important, and then points out to Sir Lynn that maybe Peter Baelish could do the same. Maybe he could set up a marriage for Selin. Wouldn't that be nice? Which earns another snapback by Lynn Corbray. And this time, actually, it gets through to Sansa a little bit, even though she thinks of herself as Elaine. This time, it gives her a bit of a chill, and she thinks, oh, maybe I've gone a bit too far. That's how nasty the uh, the bite back is from Selin. Venom in his voice is how she puts it. And then we're reminded this is actually all a public display, because Selin, we know, we remember, is actually already on Peter Baelish's payroll. He's on side. But we've got to play this farce of him being annoyed with Peter Baelish, of him having this public reason to be annoyed so that no one suspects that he's on the payroll, so that he remains a secret. See, that is insanely clever, isn't it? Not only firstly buying Sir Lin in the first place, keeping that a secret, that would be enough for a lot of people. Instead, he goes two, three, four steps further by inventing a very, very public reason for Lynn to hate Peter Baelish so that no one suspects. That is insanely clever, it must be said. Sansa has not only recognised that, she's obviously been informed of it, she knows the situation, she's contributing to it now. That is another big, big advancement. She's aware of all these extra steps, she's part of it. Although, having said that, I mean, the acting, if you want to call it that, is so good from Sir Lynn that she kind of second guesses. And I'm going to read you the quote because, I mean, we, we could sum up a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire with this quote. I'll give you the whole thing. The venom in his voice was so thick that for a moment she almost forgot that Lynn Corbray was actually her father's cat's paw, bought and paid for. Or was he? Perhaps, instead of being Peter's man, pretending to be Peter's foe, he was actually his foe, pretending to be his man, pretending to be his foe. 
I mean, that could be a blurb, couldn't it? That could really just fit across pretty much all of Westeros. So definitely the Red Keep and King's Landing, definitely here in the Vale, I'm sure, in the Reach as well, everywhere. It is very, very confusing. And Sansa says it makes her head spin. Yeah, us too. But for now, we'll probably take faith that it's going as we've been told it's been planned. Even though it is another storyline we must keep in line. What is Sir Lynn Corbray going to get up to? How will he be used? Is he actually on side or is he well, for himself? We don't know. We're going to assume for now, but well, anything could happen. But it's just good to establish him again because I think we're all in agreement he's going to have some kind of importance going forward. I would bet hard money on it. But for now, we're leaving him behind. Instead, we're going to go straight into, literally, Sansa's going to bump into another person, another aspect of this storyline that we've now got to consider. When she turns around, she bumps straight into Sher Sir Shadrich, yes, I'm going to have to say it. You'll remember I struggled with this name before. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to do so again. Sir Shadrich, Shadrick, yeah. I'll try and do my best with that. He's back, yeah. You'll remember that big, big surprise we had when he just appeared out of nowhere, right at the end of the uh, Feast for Crows. He was just in that room with Peter Baelish, and we all thought, whoa, this guy, because you remember, we first met him with Brienne, and he was seeking Sansa, and he was seeking the money he could get from getting Sansa, returning her to Cersei. He was out on that mission. So now we're thinking, ah, is this finally a weakness in Peter Baelish's armour? Is Sansa going to be stolen? Is she going to be returned to Cersei in the Red Keep or whatever's going on in King's Landing? Is this a real big fly in the ointment? This could upset the whole thing if this is successful in any way. If Shadrich does uh, steal Sansa, does take her away, does go and try and collect his bounty or whatever he's going to do. And we remember he's also not the nicest of guys in general. He's really not. So that was that was definitely one of the biggest cliffhanger parts of that last Elaine chapter in Feast. So yeah, what has he been up to? How does he figure into this arc going forward? Will he be successful? Will he be found out? Will his rescue actually work out for Sansa? Just for getting her away from Peter Baelish? That's quite possible. But well, we definitely don't want to go back to King's Landing either, do we? Especially not to Cersei. Anything could happen. So let's find out what he's going to be doing in this chapter at least. And it's actually a very quick interaction with Sir Shadrick. Sir Shadrick, I, can't, I just can't do it. It's a very quick interaction with this little mouse. But it's just another symbol of the opening chapter of the arc, isn't it? George establishing who's here, who we've got to remember, who might be popping up as important later on. We're kind of lining them up in a row, to be honest, aren't we? And this one's the latest. Now, Miranda establishes for us that Shadrick is not here to try and be one of the Brotherhood of the Winged Knights. He's too old. He says himself that, well, he doesn't think he'd ever be worthy. And we know that's not what his aim is. He doesn't want to be one of them. He wants Sansa, even if that's not publicly known yet. And Sansa suggests, okay, if you're not going to do the tourney and try and be one of the actual Brotherhood, you could still do the melee. So that's letting us know that that's on. First off, that's the first time we've been told. And it's kind of, all right, yeah, it's not the big deal. It's just an extra, it's an add-on for everyone else to do, for all the accompanying people. Like we said, these young knights, these green knights, they're not coming alone. No, no, no. Everyone else, everyone in their family and everything else, they've been stuck up in their own castles waiting for years as well. They're going to want to get out. They're going to want to see people. They do know that winter is coming, even if it's not arrived for the Vale yet. It is coming. So this is going to be the last chance for potentially a long, long time to do anything or see anyone so they're going to come out as well and a lot of the men they're going to do the melee even if they can't do the, the tournament 
So yet another way for Peter Baelish to get even more people around and on side and just bring up those opportunities, keep those doors open. And Sanzo identifies, like she did earlier, that there's prizes for the champion, there's money to be won in this movie. Well, we know that money is what the mouse wants, he says, but he wants to stumble on a bag of dragons. He thinks he already has because he thinks he stumbled on Sansa, or he knows he has. Well, at least we assume he's recognising her as Sansa. I think we're, yeah, I think we're all pretty agreed on that, aren't we? I would guess anyway. So that's just George subtly reminding us that, yeah, this guy knows what he's found, that remains his objective, but that's pretty much all we get from him now. I think we can safely say he's going to be returning in quite a big way later. We can have multiple theories on how that might go. I think we'd probably best save that for later. We've still got quite a lot of chapter to talk about. Maybe at the end, we'll discuss the many, many possibilities of Sher, Sher, Sher Shadrick. I'm just going to give in. I'm just going to call him Sher from now on, I think. Anyway, he's gone. They still want to find Peter Baelish, but they're interrupted. Horns are sounding from the castle wall. Their guests are arriving. Anya Wainwood, her sons, and most importantly, Harry the heir, the man of the hour. So we have the urge to get to the gates and welcome the guests on two folds, really. There is the usual excitement of wanting to get there and see the newbies and watch them arrive, as we saw everyone do way back at Winterfell a long time ago. But there's also the mission of wanting to get there and make an impression or gather information or just be seen. That's true for Sansa and for her secret mission, but it's likely pretty true for Miranda as well. She'd still like to make an impression as she can as well. She'd still love to sway Harry's interest over to her instead. So it's a combination of tactical intrigue and genuine interest, and I think we can see which takes precedent, even for a little while, as both of these young women decide they're going to run for it. They're going to sprint through the castle, dresses and decorum forgotten. They're going to give in and just have fun for once. Because that's what it is. It is fun. Sansa Stark, the girl who saw her father's death and was kept as a prisoner and a bargaining piece and has been manipulated in every step of her journey, is actually having fun. And this is really where that trap comes in. We know Peter Baelish has nefarious purposes. We know we need to be worried about the approach and philosophy that Sansa is learning. And we know dark times are probably just around the corner. But it's very, very hard to care when we actually see Sansa be a happy child for once and with a genuine friend as well. This paragraph honestly melts the heart. We love Sansa. We'd want this for her even without all the tragedy that she's had to go through. This is what kids and young people are supposed to be like and get through. This is it. And let's face it, this kind of scene has always been rare throughout the series, but is especially so in this darkest of books. So to find it here in the beginning of Wins truly is a treat. And we even get an added bonus, as I'll quote for you in a second. Not only do we have a moment of fun and freedom and happiness, but that state of mind brings about memories of her true self and true past. Have a listen here. It was most unladylike, but Elaine soon found herself laughing. For just a little while, as she ran, she forgot who she was and where, and found herself remembering bright, cold days at Winterfell, when she would race through the castle with her friend Jane Poole, with Aya running after them, trying to keep up. Yes, sobering as it is for us to have to think of Jane Poole, this is another wonderful image of the past that we can enjoy. Plus, it goes to show the default is still there, under the surface. Sure, Sansa still thinks of herself as Elaine, unfortunately, but she's also not correcting herself over memories that clearly belong to Sansa. She's reverting to them in a moment of happiness when the facade of Elaine can be mentally dropped. So I think it's important to remember that connection. That happiness means Winterfell and the Starks. Surely that will resurface, that will come up later. It's very, very important. Either way, after their thrilling race that, yeah, we, we really just should enjoy, I think. The two girls arrive, red-faced and cloakless, to see the Wainwoods ride through the gates of the moon. 
Anya, who we've already met in Feast, comes first, of course, and she's greeted by Miranda, allowing Anya the chance to introduce her own companions. First, her grandson Roland, then her younger son Wallace, both of them knights, of course, but also fairly small fry compared to the prize they're all here for, Harold Harding. Finally, he's on page, he's here. The plot just took a huge step forward. And unfortunately, Sansa's sense of freedom and fun disappears as she remembers she's actually on the clock. The importance of the moment resurfaces in her memory and threatens to overwhelm her for a second. Harry the heir, Elaine thought. My husband-to-be, if he'll have me. A sudden terror filled her. She wondered if her face was red. Don't stare at him, she reminded herself. Don't stare, don't gape, don't gawk, look away. Yes, suddenly it's all business now. She remembers the pressure is on and her job is to impress. That means looking like perfection. That means being physically attractive. And yes, I would say it is very much normal to feel uncomfortable at this part again as we remember how Littlefinger has made Sansa feel about who she has to be and what purpose she serves and how she has to sell herself. Very uncomfortable indeed. But she also recognises again the criticalness of the meeting. Never mind your stupid hair, she thought. Your hair doesn't matter. It's him that matters. Him and the Wainwoods. Speaking of the Wainwoods, they get a paragraph of focus as Sansa gives a very brief description. Roland, he's tall and muscular at 25, though neither he or Wallace are anything to write home about in the looks department apparently. And to be fair, they are only fleeting distractions. The gravity in the scene is pulling all towards one guy, a guy that Sansa is already fixated on as the weight of who she is actually meeting really comes to her. My Harry, my lord, my lover, my betrothed. That's big stuff. Harry's description confirms for us that Peter knows his business of optics. This is a man who looks the part of a lord. He's handsome, he's athletic. He's even reported to have the look of a young John Aaron himself, which Littlefinger must be ecstatic about. That's a real cherry on top that could help persuade some of the older folk to buy into his rule and into this facade. Yes, the plan for everyone to hurriedly forget poor sweet Robin and replace him with this new improved model seems to be going swimmingly. But Sansa isn't falling head over heels just yet. Where you'd expect a younger Sansa to have been swept off her feet by the sight of this princely looking man, one she can hopefully marry to finally get her song, the older version that we have now makes sure to check back with recent experience instead. Joffrey was comely too though, she reminded herself. A comely monster, that's what he was. Little Tyrion was kinder, twisted though he was. This kind of maturity and thinking is incredibly pleasing to see in Sansa. She's learned from her history, and she hasn't forgotten despite the siren song that Peter Baelish sings. As well as it being another instance of not correcting Sansa-based memories, we all remember how big of a learning curve this was for Sansa in the early books. We spent hours and hours speaking on how she learnt to look beneath the surface of physical looks, of how beauty and looks were not actually representative of being a good person or someone's worth, as she was once more aligned to in her way of thinking. That is a core, core piece of Sansa's arc. It's a really important part of her story, so it's great to see that being recognised. Baelish might be teaching her many things, but Sansa is learning the really important stuff all on her own. Sansa then notes two things using her observation skills. One, Harry is not pleased to see her. He knows she's the other part of this betrothal, and he doesn't seem over the moon about it. That's a roadblock she's going to have to tackle at some point. The other, as always, is his sigil. His shield is quartered. He's got one-fourth for House Harding, one for House Wainwood, and then two quarters reserved for the heraldry of House Aaron, the Moon and Falcon. This is very, very important, and again, it puts another smile on Littlefinger's face. Harry has already, perhaps unknowingly, started the persuasion of the Vale Lords. He's already setting that seed that he's part of House Aaron. 
That means when the time comes, the transition will just be that much easier, that much smoother. He's already fitting the bill. And Sansa thinks that Sweet Robin won't be pleased about this shield. And he'd be damn right not to, wouldn't he? The meaning is pretty clear for all to see. The replacement has arrived. Sweet Robin truly is a bit more shrewd than people give him credit for. Importantly, we're now told that these Waynewoods are the last of the competitors to arrive, so we know our plot is going to be moved along even more pretty soon. Good news for us, good news for the Royces. Sure, the Eyrie is the least touched by war and winter so far, but that doesn't mean they have an inexhaustible level of food. They're going to need these guests to leave at some point. And speaking of winter, Lady Anya mentioned snow up in the passes, so although winter is on the periphery, it's still there, it's still looming. And I wouldn't be surprised to see it spill over into the Vale, and maybe catch this group off guard at some point in the book. So Roland now takes his opportunity to get his personality across. He is a confident man, to say the least. He shows no restraint in giving over-the-top, sickness-inducing courtesies to Sansa. And he's also a bit of a bully to his younger uncle here as well, Sir Wallace, who has a stammer. So we're quickly learning a lot about the relationships at play here. It's while looking at Wallace, someone that Sansa still considers a shy boy, and thinks on how he'd actually be the same age as Rob, that Sansa thinks about how... Yes, same age, but Rob was entirely different. He was a man, he was a king. And let's remember, we actually saw a much, much more grown-up Rob down in the Riverlands than Sansa ever got to see before she left Winterfell. I just think it's worthy to point out every single time Sansa lapses back into her Sansa self. For all she's thinking of herself as Elaine and going along with Littlefinger plans, she's having plenty of starky moments and memories, as we've already seen. And that's a relief to see. Everything she's built up in terms of returning to her family emotionally at the end of Storm and through Feast has not been wasted. She might have some extra stuff on her plate right now to go alongside it, but it's still there. Still, the mission does exist, so Sansa takes an opportunity to get connecting with Harry a bit when she offers to take him up to his chambers. He's been placed in the Falcon Tower, which is apparently far away from Sweet Robin, which Sansa recognises as intentional from Littlefinger. No doubt it is, but it also fits quite well with your branding technique to put your new falcon in the tower of the same name. So Sansa's being very polite, she's being very kind with her offers. It's just good manners, which is another of her masteries. She's giving her best smile and she's just thinking, look, I don't need to sweep him off his feet all at once, just give me a toehold, give me an in, that's all we need right now. Unfortunately, Harry the heir does not respond in kind. So Harold looked down at her coldly. Why should it please me to be escorted anywhere by Littlefinger's bastard? Oh dear, that roadblock looks a bit more solid. And it turns out Harry is a bit of a dick. It's a very quick way to get into our bad books being rude to Sansa. We don't like it. Now, fairness, we don't know how much he knows. We don't know his motivation for this. It might be simply his way of fighting back against being told who he has to marry. Maybe he feels he's being sold off as well. But in either case, the fault clearly doesn't belong to Sansa. And it's much more likely that he's actually acting this way because he currently thinks he's being married off to someone unworthy. Someone too far below his own station. He appears to think that bastards are worthless, which isn't exactly a rare trait in the nobility. We've seen Sansa think the same thing before after all. But he's definitely being a dick about it. At the very least, even if he is annoyed, his cutting words are a step too far, and all three Waynewoods are united in their disapproval about this break of courtesy, with Anya specifically reprimanding him for the rudeness. In Sansa's case, though, she does not break. Instead, she falls back on one of her core concepts right from the beginning. A lady's armour is her courtesy. She's not going to let this guy get her. She's not going to let him get a rise out of her or feel superior. Inside, she can feel the blush, but she's going to keep her mask on. So she replies coolly to Harry the heir. She refers to herself as Littlefinger's bastard to throw it back in his face, and she moves on. Privately, of course, she decides that she does not like him, which is completely fair. 
The Waynewoods are all apologising for their rogue relation, but Sansa, she's not sticking around, she's off. It actually turns out to be a pretty athletic chapter for Sansa, doesn't it? Because she's on the run once more, sprinting across the yard until she's out of range of the guests and then George takes the opportunity to have yet another player walk out on stage just to keep with this establishment vibe. This time it is Sir Lofa Brune, Maya Stone fan and former Sansa saviour. And he gets another turn to get into her good books when he insults Harry for her. He calls him an upjump squire. And you do get this little kind of protective, friendly vibe from the guy. And I think Sansa feels that too. Which makes it super unfortunate that the dude works for Pia Baelish and is complicit in what's happening to Sansa. If we're being super, super hopeful, maybe we can dream of Lofa Brune defying some evil little finger order when it comes down to it. Choosing Sansa instead when everything is on the line. Yes, that would be quite sweet, wouldn't it? Almost like a song, you could say. The reality is probably closer to the opposite, though. It's fairly easy to imagine a scenario where Sansa hopes for Brune to come through on her side, and yet him ultimately siding with his employer instead. But the image of Baelish not being able to rely on handing out the paychecks for once is sure tempting. We'd love that kind of comeuppance to occur at some point down the road. On top of that, Lofer finally reveals Littlefinger's location. He is down in the vaults doing some stock inventory with Lords Grafton and Belmore. So that's where Sansa goes, down into the deep dark, and we finally get to meet Lord Gerald Grafton, Lord of Goldtown and obviously a very important man. In terms of Peter Baelish getting people on his side, Gerald has a pretty large feather in his cap. Goldtown is obviously very, very important both politically and strategically. Having an in with its lord is more than valuable. So Sansa can hear this lord as she walks down the steps to the vault, and he's bemoaning to Littlefinger the fact that all the merchants in Goldtown are very, very eager to buy their food stores. The lords of the Vale, seeing dollar signs in their eyes, are very keen to sell, but Littlefinger is disallowing it. He's saying to do whatever you need to do, extra guards, seizing ships, whatever, just don't let any food leave the Vale. So Lord Belmore joins in and says, hang on a minute, there's a pretty profit to be made here. Why are we not selling what is a hot commodity? Grafton is even more baffled. He comes from Goldtown, remember, and Goldtown's a port, a very big, important port. The Graftons are a wealthy merchant-type family themselves. They understand commerce, and it seems like Littlefinger is telling them not to do good business. Doesn't make sense. Baffling as it is for them, though, it makes complete sense to us. Baelish is actually being very, very shrewd. He knows that winter and famine are coming, and they are coming hard. Most likely, he knows about the food situation in the Riverlands and the North and other places, and he knows the Vale is going to be one of the only untouched food sources there is. So while the potential profit might be high now, it will soon be soaring, he says. And unfortunately, we do have to agree with him. He's probably right. Of course, we're also aware that this resource hoarding is intrinsically evil. Baelish is going to wait until the prices rise, and he's probably going to allow the starving to outbid each other until only a few remain. And the losers? Well, they're going to starve. A great many people all over Westeros will starve, and Peter Baelish is the one with the power to save at least a portion of them, but of course he won't. He'll hold out for monetary gain, and probably there'll be a few political favours he can call in for food as well. Let's look for some extortion to be going on pretty soon. In fact, he even believes this could be used for their little internal war for control of the Vale, because Grafton complains that Bronjon Royce isn't going to wait. He's got his own port, so he doesn't have to go through Goldtown. So he's worried that Royce will get the drop on them and earn all the money by selling off his own stores. Baelish, again taking the overall long-term view, one that encompasses events outside the borders of the Vale, says fine, let him do it. Because all that means is that when winter really hits, Bronzion will have less food to eat, but more silver to give. And if there's someone that Baelish would really like to put in a corner right now, it's Bronzion. So that all works really well. 
It's now that they realise Elaine is there, and she delivers the news of the Wainwoods and Harry having arrived. Lord Belmore is pretty astonished that this has actually come about, indicating that Bronjon knows that this is bad news for him that Harry is present, but Peter goes on to explain that he was pretty much powerless to stop it unless he wanted to break social and honourable custom. Again, it's the painting into a corner that Peter is a master of. It's the gaming of the system. He knows what type of person Bronjon is, he knows he wouldn't break those customs, and he's taken advantage of it. And perhaps another small important note is that Baelish doesn't think Harry is skilled enough to win a place amongst the winged knights, an opinion apparently shared by the others, which would beg the question of what he's doing here, wouldn't it? The other two lords, they depart now, leaving Sansa alone with Peter fucking Baelish in a dark, empty room beneath the ground. Readers, listeners rather, your hackles should be up for this part. Mine most definitely are. As Littlefinger leads Sansa deeper into the vault, and to be honest, that action alone is enough to worry me, he gets down to business. He basically wants a mission report on how the first meeting with Harry went. When Sansa calls the boy horrible, Littlefinger dismisses it out of turn. He says, she's seen horrible people before, that shouldn't be a problem for her, get over it basically. And that advice, or that direction, it doesn't sit right with me. Sure, in this instance it doesn't mean all that much, but it's also Littlefinger saying it doesn't matter who the guy is as a person, or how he treats you. It seems to imply that even if Harry were a monster, like Joffrey for example, Littlefinger would still be sending Sansa into his clutches if it got him any kind of advantage. This, from Peter Baelish, who has never put himself at risk of physical danger, yet has repeatedly done so with Sansa. Remember, he was quite happy for her to just be in King's Landing when Stannis was coming, when the city was about to burn. So I think this is a sign to us readers that he'd be plenty prepared to do such again. When Sansa gives some further explanation of what happened in the yard, Baelish gives much the same explanation that we did. As it stands, young Harry, who probably had the world at his feet a few weeks ago, has now been ordered to marry a girl he believes to be below his station for a reason he doesn't understand, and Bronjon has been warning him against the entire thing as well, so it makes sense why he's against it. But that doesn't excuse his blatant classism against bastards, his arrogance, or his rudeness to Sansa, but it does make sense why he wouldn't trust her. Littlefinger goes on to remind Sansa that this isn't about finding a nice guy that they can be friends with, it's about the plan. It's about use and climbing the ladder. They've got him here, so check that off the list. Now the next bit is Sansa's role. He tells her she must win him, entrance and bewitch him, he says, and do it using your looks, your pretty face, he says. Again, clearly, I don't like the message, the implication here. I don't like him saying that Sansa's worth is only in her physical beauty. Now, that's not exactly a rare opinion in this Westerosi society, but it doesn't mean I have to like it, especially when we actually have an open window to the true deep persona that Sansa actually has. It makes it even worse. Yeah, just don't like the message there. And unfortunately, this message isn't lightened from our load. Littlefinger really doubles down on how Sansa must look at the feast, how she will shine above all the others. What he's really saying is that he spent a long time looking at her and decided he can take advantage of how she looks in comparison to everyone else. He's saying she's hotter than all the other young women. It's the creepiest of creepies, make no mistake, and that's before he starts comparing her to Catelyn. Yes, we know his thoughts and feelings towards Catelyn Tully, which makes the comparisons all the more disgusting. But he's not done. He also gives advice on how to frustrate Harry, how to make him jealous and make him want her even more. None of it gets any easier to read. No less because Sansa seems to take his word as gospel and absorbs it all. Once the dancing actually comes, Sansa is to play the tease even more. She's to physically touch him. She is to make him feel as though he's the gallant hero, taking the airheaded maid out for fresh air. The entire thing is making me angrier and angrier the further we move through it. It's all just disgusting and manipulative, and it's grooming. 
as well as being very over-sexualized for this poor girl. Again, I say, bleh. It's selling, is what it is. It is the selling of Sansa's body, Sansa's name, and ultimately her soul as well, even though no one seems to be particularly bothered about that part as much. All we can do for now is hope that she wakes up to that fact sooner rather than later. We do have some luck, if you really want to call it that, when Sansa escapes the scene with just being kissed on the cheeks. Still disgusting, but we'll take it under the circumstances. And then again, she also calls him father as he gives her creepy parting advice, so it's not all good. Either way, we now fast forward to the promised feast later that day. 64 courses are served, because of course they are, and again, that really strikes out at us considering our travels to the Riverlands, or up in the Stormy North, or even further up to the Wall. Let's remember that cannibalism is already rifling through the realm because hunger is so prevalent. Yet here, we've got people chowing down through 64 courses. It really does stick out to you, doesn't it? Most of all, I think it's just George taking the advantage of having the opportunity to do a really, really long food description paragraph. We know he loves them, and they're assumedly only going to become rarer, so he has to pounce on the chance. I will say, this lemon cake in the shape of the giant's lance with a sugar eerie on top does sound pretty damn cool. I would quite like to see that, especially as a recent devourer of lemon cakes for my wife's birthday. Yeah, that's what we made. Apparently, this beast required every lemon in the veil, which makes me laugh a bit. Littlefinger will send to Dawn for more. Now, does that open up for some connections between these two isolated kingdoms? Probably not, but it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Next come the presents. Now, presents for Sweet Robin, you might assume? No, 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 you'd be wrong. Each of the competitors, they're getting a goodie bag just for showing up. And not just them, but everybody who came with them as well. The knights themselves, they're going to get a brand new cloak and a brooch in the shape of a falcon's wings. The spectators and everyone who came with them, they get either a dagger if they're a male, or a bolt of silk or lace if they're a female. It's not bad just for showing up, just for showing your face, and it's another surefire way to impress people, keep them happy, get them on side. It's PR, plain and simple, that's all it is. On the surface, it's officially Nestor Royce who's being so generous, this being his castle, after all him officially being the host, but everyone and their aunt really knows this little finger, as Annual Wenwood demonstrates for us here. With food and gifts out of the way, it's time for some dancing. Though Ben Coldwater remarked how odd it is that there's no singers, it's just musicians. When the expected explanation comes up that this is because of Marillion, Sansa makes sure to double down on that, to tread the story into everyone's minds just that little bit more. It all helps to dispel any notion that Littlefinger was involved in any way, of course. And they seem to accept it pretty readily, because after that it is dancing time. And again, we're hitting on one of Sansa's original dreams. This is what she used to dream about. Great big halls where she could dance with all the dashing young men of the realm. They could all dress up and do their dancing and it would be terribly exciting. And now she's getting to do exactly that. She dances with Ben, then Andrew Tollett, and Sir Byron, Sir Morgoth, even Sir Sadric, just to hold us out of the moment briefly. Then comes Alba Royce, who I think I'm right in saying was present way back at the hands turning when she was younger. Then the Sunderland boys, Ufa Shet, Targon the Halfwild, then Roland Wainwood and his uncle Wallace. It is an amazing time for her, one she genuinely relishes. So again, we do have to appreciate and like that she has the opportunity to do such things. It is most definitely preferable to so much she's been through before. We really have to just be like, ah, this is nice. Good for her. Of course, along with that is the marring thought that some, although hopefully not all, of these men are acting on sexual desire alone. Some of them definitely are. Sansa mentions the slimy comments at one point, but some are probably actually just being genuinely chivalrous. Just to annoy us further, Littlefinger's action plan seems to have been right on the money, because as soon as Sansa takes a single break, there is Harry the heir, suitably jealous at watching the prettiest girl in the room dance with everyone but him. 
and when he asks for his opportunity, Sansa remembers her instructions and denies him. Well, that at least gets an apology for his behaviour in the yard, but Sansa stays on the offensive. She even gives us a superb line. Harry says, I was unforgivably rude to you in the yard. You must forgive me. Must? She tossed her hair, took a sip of wine, made him wait. How can you forgive someone who is unforgivably rude? Will you explain that to me, sir? Just Let's just look at how much wit this girl has. She's kicking ass. She's grown so quickly and the results are amazing to see. Unsurprisingly, Harry looks confused at this response because he's clearly nowhere near Sansa's level, but she remembers the mission and allows the dance to happen. And on their way onto the floor, she spies young Robert Aaron staring at the two of them. Again, as we said earlier, annoying as he can be, you've got to feel for the kid. Earlier on, we called Sansa his last tether. Not something she signed up to be, not a fair responsibility to place on her, but it's true all the same. Now, everything he was worried about in terms of losing that last tether appears to be coming true. He must feel awful in this moment. He must feel so, so alone and very, very worried about what's going to happen to him now. He's lost so much already and Elaine is slipping through his fingers and to the guy he thinks is out for his general position as well. His emotional upheaval is going to sense this in the air. He's going to know he's in danger and that he has no friends. He's, he's got nothing. It honestly hurts me to imagine this poor kid having to feel all this under a haze of drugs as well, let's not forget, without having anyone to turn to. He's got nothing. It is absolutely sickening to me. But then the dance starts, and even if we can't forget Robert's plight, Sansa does for now. It's back to the mission. Dancing, she's got that down, but she knows she needs more than that to leave an impression. She needs the gift of the gab, and she knows it has to be memorable. Empty courtesies will have no more effect on him than the countless ones she's heard through this feast have had on her. Besides, she can't be seen to be too keen. So she settles on something more unique, more likely to get him off track and taking notice. To do that, she references the fact that he is expecting his second child. Harry confirms that and tells us his firstborn is a daughter named Alice. And Sansa is smart enough to pick on the hypocrisy of him leaving out the fact that Alice is a bastard, but she's also too polite to point it out, though she does mention both children are coming from different mothers. And Harry's response hardly paints him as the chivalric dasher that Sansa would like him to be. Sissy, his first partner, apparently gained weight after delivering Alice, which meant Harry was done with her. Yeah, that's the kind of guy we're dealing with here. Apparently, his second has not yet annoyed him so. Saffron, the daughter of a Goldtown merchant. Sansa, that wit and quick tongue becoming ever more skillful by the minute, is able to joke about the name even if Harry's a bit too dim to realise. And she's also ballsy when she straight up gets flirty flirty and asks if Saffron is as beautiful as her. Again, this is another moment that she'd be glad to see Sansa reaching. It's her first real flirtation, so it's a marker of growing up and reaching a new stage and just you know, part of this stage of her life. It should be natural and innocent and cool to see. The transition from child to young adult. But instead we have the sinister shadow always looming when we remember the true purpose and who put it there. Harry admits what we originally suspected. He was in a grump earlier on because he assumed this match would not have satisfied his shadow requirements. And that was it. Now he's found different, and not only that, but she's a bit of a live wire as well. She jokes, she banters, she's someone who will grab your attention, and that's before Sansa lays down the deal closer. She ran one finger down his cheek. Should we ever wed, you'll have to send Saffron back to her father. I'll be all the spice you'll want. Oh, oh, oh my. Let's not beat around the bush here. Sansa knows what she's doing, and she's damn good at it. Mission absolutely fucking accomplished. There can be no question of that. This guy is charmed. He's enchanted. He's bewitched. He is totally under her spell. After a single 
chapter. They've met twice, twice in one day, and she's done it. Sansa's powers of manipulation, of playing people, of her many, many skills are burning bright hot right now. And okay, sure, some of that is due to Littlefinger's creepy coaching, but let's give the credit where it's due. This is all Sansa. She's not wearing an earpiece being fed lines, it's all her. And we've seen hints of this throughout, of course. We've always known these skills were there, but we've never seen them like this. Unfortunately, yes, it does have the nefarious background and purposes and link to Littlefinger. It is creepy in its use, but that doesn't mean it's not impressive to see Sansa running rings around everyone. And it's not a superb marker of her own growth that really is amazing to see. She gives one more final tease of refusing to wear his favour during the tourney, just to not give the entire game away, to keep him work and keep her in his mind. The guy is obviously thinking with one part of his body more than any other, and he's a bit slow on the uptake, but again, that doesn't take away from Sansa. And there, the chapter closes. And what a chapter it is. Like I said, that just shows how little time Sansa actually needs. She's met Harry, she's bewitched Harry, all within a single day. And this chapter really has been perfect for our preview needs, hasn't it? It's excellent for telling us what's going to happen. We know where this storyline is headed, probably more so than the other preview chapters we've had so far. War and the battle for Marine and all that, that's very, very much up in the air. We at least know the direction that's coming here. We know that, well, firstly, that Harry is definitely under Sansa's thumb already. We know she's going to excel at the great game for going forward. And in terms of actual events, we know the tourney chapter is probably going to be next. You would assume that will be Sansa too. That's the chapter that I think is going to be very, very famous. It's going to be superb at showing off even more of Sansa's skills. You can just imagine her up in the stands or wherever she's going to be just playing this game and, I don't know, taking out competitors or putting herself in a better position or doing all these many, many things, charming people, disarming people, whatever it might be. And on top of that, we probably will get to see some cool jousting. There's bound to be some important events in there. We know how big, again, tourneys are in terms of our story, in terms of this world. So yeah, that, I do think that next chapter, it's got to be the next one or one after, is going to be really, really famous. Like I say, this one though, it's superb at setting the tone, the establishment vibe. How many characters do we meet that we're reminded of because it has been so long since we've been here in this one chapter. George has literally lined them up all in a row and we've got newbies as well. Really important ones, as I say, ones that really could define a lot of what happens in this book. On top of that, this is a very, very kind chapter. We see Sansa get to run around. We get to see her with a friend. We get to see her doing the dancing. We've had these starky memories of... Winterfell with her and Jane Poole and even I is included. She thinks of Rob, she even thinks of Ned. There's even lemon cakes to talk about. This is one of the happiest Sansa chapters we've ever had, if not the happiest Sansa chapter. So it's very, very fun for us to actually get to enjoy that. Of course, the other side is that this is still sickening overall. We've still got all these worrying, worrying thoughts about Sweet Robin, about the direction she's going in, about how far Littlefinger's infiltrated her mind. She is absolutely dedicated to him and his word i think that's established more than before she's really fallen further down that particular hole and that's got us worried about the future how far will she go how far will that be taken but then again at the same time we have all the other things that we're wondering about her skills how else is she going to deploy them as she goes whether at the tourney or later how else will she start to puppeteer people and what will be the conflict that arises because surely it will, and how will she react to that? How many other one-liners is she going to drop? Because she gets some doozies in this chapter, doesn't she? Her growth, her amazingness is bright on display in this chapter. 
It's really, really fun. I think probably, I know the other ones we've covered so far obviously are in a battle, so you want to see more of the actual battle. But this chapter is superb. This is why I think it's been chosen as a preview here. This is superb for us wanting more. I would be desperate to have another Sansa preview chapter. Give me Sansa 2. How good would that be? I would love it, and I'm sure all of you would as well. It's just an honour to get to talk some Sansa finally, to revisit this Vale storyline that is so important, it is so popular. Even with the massive gap we've had, that's still always, always a, a premier talking point between fans because of Sansa being so wonderful, because we know how important Peter Baelish is going to be, because of the many, many possibilities that are going to come out of this. Like I say, we have the tourney, that's going to be up next. And far be it for me to guess what's going to happen in that. Something, obviously, nothing's ever straightforward. There will be conflicts, there will be turns in the road. Will Sansa have to go up against Miranda? Will there be something that takes Harry away? Will the murder of Sweet Robin be botched? Or will Bronzion lead some kind of rebellion, some kind of curveball to stop Peter Baelish in his tracks? I couldn't tell you. I, I'm not the guesser you know that, but there is a lot that could happen. And then after that... If it all goes well, are we going to see Sansa have another marriage? Will we actually have to witness Sweet Robin's murder? Will it be part of the cover-up and the excuse? We don't know. What are the long-term plans of Peter Baelish? Will he try and secede once that marriage is done? Will he try and break away from the Iron Throne? How is that going to interact with the coming of Aegon and all those things? We have wondered about his interactions with those guys before as well. That's always a possibility. He's going to have to react to that at some point if there is a marriage then we can probably expect there to be the reveal also we're going to see elaine become sansa again that's going to be an incredible incredible moment i'm very interested to see how that affects the psychology of sansa her being publicly sansa again i imagine that will make her feel very unsafe at the beginning because the last time she was publicly sansa she it was used to keep her as a prisoner Will she realise that that's actually what's happening now? It's just a much more nice imprisonment. And Peter Baelish is good at casting that veil over her eyes. And of course, what we all really want to know is will she wake up and realise what this guy is, what he's doing her to her, and will she be the one to trip him up? Will she bring him down? Will that happen in this book? Will it happen later? Again, I said before, I think that's probably going to come later at Winterfell, up in the north, so will we see that journey in this book as well? It's perfectly possible. Perfectly possible that could all happen in this book. Sansa, maybe she has a resurgence in terms of chapters. Maybe she gets a good seven, eight, nine chapters. And we do see the beginning first three or four of the Vale. Then we go up north. Although I still think she could also go to the Riverlands for several general purposes to follow in Catelyn's footsteps. But let's say she goes north and we actually get to see that. Let's say we actually get to see Littlefinger fall in the arena of Ned, like Ned fell in the arena of Littlefinger's down in King's Landing. That is sure to be joyous when we finally do reach that stage. However it happens, it's going to be incredibly interesting. So you know we're very, very hopeful to see Peter fucking Baelish get what he deserves and I would love for Sansa to be the one to deliver that to him. That's obviously pretty far away still. We've got a lot to cover before that. But yeah, I think I'd be... I'd be comfortable in saying out of all the preview chapters, this is the one I'd want another of. We're quite lucky we get two Tyrions, we get two Barristans. If I could pick one more to have, it probably would be Sansa too, to be fair. I'd just love to see the continuation of this character, this really, really interesting character. Sansa's always been interesting to me. I never understand the people who say otherwise. But seeing her now, using these skills, seeing that growth and where she's got to, it's just amazing. And 
Hopefully she can gain a few more happy moments, some more childlike moments like she has in last chapter. Probably the opportunities for those are going to go downward. There will be more uncomfortableness, I would imagine, if she if this wedding goes through with Harry and she actually physically has to sell herself. That could make for some uncomfortable reading. So we'll have to see if we've reached that and how George chooses to tackle that. And well, of course, the much bigger worry, I would say, is what will happen with Littlefinger's restraint. In this chapter, he manages to hold on to himself. He just kisses her on the cheeks. Will that remain the case? I have my doubts. We'll say it that way, especially if you read that last feast chapter of Sansa's. Yes, I definitely, definitely have my doubts. But we shall see i hope you enjoyed that chapter i really really did again we're lucky to have that as the longest one i'm pretty sure it's the longest one anyway mercy might be a contender but i think sansa's got the longest down as she normally does so it remains to me to say thank you for coming along for the journey back up to the Vale. it has been very very fun let me remind you of what we said at the beginning episode 100 the brand new era of the island faces is just around the corner hopefully by the time you're listening to this it is a special episode, the first of our 100 questions on the winds of winter. And even more importantly, it will be the first episode with our new semi-co-host type person, Emily of the Eerie, funnily enough, for what we're discussing today. So please do send in your questions for that if you haven't done so already. Please do, of course, tune in and welcome Emily along with me. You can hear all these different questions and different answers. Share your answers as well when you, once you listen to it. And help us spread the word, most definitely, because... We're very, very excited about this brand new era and everything it brings and all this cool cool new stuff we're going to have on the aisle. So it's definitely time to celebrate. In terms of scraps and scrolls, don't worry, it's going to be back on the regular now. We've just had Sansa. Next up will be Theon 1. So we're going up for our lone trip to the north, in fact, I think. Yes, I am right in saying that. Unfortunately, we have no Asher, we have no Davos, we have no Bran or Melisandre, or of course, no John preview chapters. So this is it. This is the one we get, just Fionn. And as I said back when we were doing dance, I think Fionn 1 is one of the more connected into the dance plotline. I might even be right in saying that it was originally a dance chapter that got moved. I would have to look for that. We'll discuss that next time, of course. But yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right. So we're going to really resubmerge ourselves into the Northern War, into these things that we spent a lot of time discussing back in Scraps and Scrolls for Dance. So that'll be really good to get back into that, even if only for a week. And that's not a short chapter either, actually. I have had a quick look. That is not a short chapter by any means. There is plenty to cover all about Stannis and the war and Winterfell and the Boltons and what's going to happen with this battle and of course about Theon himself and his own fate. We'll have betrayals uncovered, we'll have plans revealed, we'll have a lot of stuff that can lead on further into winds and not just in that storyline either but we'll save all that for next time. For now thank you once again for joining everybody do send in questions, do tune in for 100 questions on Wind of Winter, do say hello to Emily with me, and we will see you both then and next time on Scraps and Skulls. Thanks everybody, see you later. <laughs>